Hi folks, Shag here. I'm starting this episode a little bit different. You know, this month's issue of Justice League Europe includes some changes to the creative team that I've just got to address. Now, I've known this moment was coming since the first year of the podcast, so I've had about five years to think about it. Starting with Justice League Europe number 14 in this episode, the new full-time scripter on the series is a man named Gerard Jones. Now, Keith Giffen continues to develop the plots, uh, but Jones produces the scripts for the next 20-plus issues, all the way to the end of the giffen Dimitaris Bwahaha era. And just in case anyone's forgotten, the mandate of this podcast is to cover the giffen Dimitaris era of the Justice League. Once Giffen and Dimitaris are off the books, that'll end our coverage. So why is this worth talking about now? Well, Gerard Jones was arrested in September 2016 for some pretty horrible crimes. If you're interested, you can look them up yourself. I don't want to outline the specifics of that here. He pleaded guilty to the crimes, and at the time of this recording, he is currently serving a six-year prison sentence, uh, which began November 2018. It is worth probably mentioning that in April 2020, he did start writing what he calls a prison blog. And if I understand it correctly, he handwrites these posts and then mails them to a former colleague on the outside, and they transcribe them into a blogging software. And the blog states that Gerard Jones is writing these pieces in an attempt to make amends, to talk about addiction, and more importantly, talk about recovery and hopefully help others. So while the crimes he committed are pretty horrible, he's currently paying his debt to society in prison, and his blog claims he's trying to make amends and become a better person. And really, given the situation, I suppose that's the most any of us could hope for. He's serving his time and hopefully reforming. So, how's this impact our Justice League Europe coverage going forward? Well, between now and the end of the Given Dimitaeus era, we've got something like 20-plus issues to cover that were scripted by Jones. Over the years, folks have chimed in and given me advice on how to handle these Gerard Jones scripted issues. One reoccurring piece of advice is to skip them entirely. Along those lines, some people feel that DC shouldn't be reprinting anything written by Gerard Jones. Personally, I'm on the other side of that fence. Comics are a collaborative work. You know, look at these Just Like Europe issues. Yes, Gerard Jones wrote the scripts. Correct. However, Keith Giffen still plotted them. Bart Sears, Linda Medley, a bunch of other people penciled them. There's inkers and letters and colorists and editors and assistant editors and publishers and so on. So many people worked on these issues. By not reprinting them and making them available digitally, it punishes everyone on that creative team for the horrible actions of one person. That doesn't seem fair to everyone else. Now, if we're talking about the works created solely by Gerard Jones, like those prose books he wrote, then I feel it'd be different. Those were his creations, and only he worked on them. I could easily see not supporting those works. But we're talking about comics that were created collaboratively by a bunch of people. Prior to Gerard Jones' arrest, DC and Comicsology had made the Just League Europe issues available digitally. They even planned some collected editions at the time, but all of those were canceled after his arrest, and the issues were pulled digitally from those services as well. Now, DC has reprinted uh, some of the Gerard Jones scripted issues uh, in the Justice League International Omnibus Volume 2 that just came out. I'm not sure really what that means for other Gerard Jones scripted issues, or if they might make them available digitally individually. We just don't know. Now, it is also possible that these Justice League Europe issues have some sort of contractual royalty arrangement with Gerard Jones. If so, then reprinting them could potentially put money in Jones's pocket. Again, I, I have no inside knowledge here. But if you're concerned about that, you always have the option of picking up the back issues from your local comic shop or an online retailer. That way you can get these great comics, you can support your local comic shops, and you don't have to worry about that potential reprint royalty issue. So where does that leave us with the podcast? Well, going forward, we will cover the Justice League Europe issues that Gerard Jones scripted. For these comics, and specifically in Jones's case, we're going to focus on separating the art from the artist. Again, he's just one person amongst this large team of creators on the books. These issues are still plotted by Keith Giffen, and that's our mandate, to cover the Giffen-Dimitaeus era of the series. And these Justice League Europe issues tie in pretty heavily with Justice League America. 
Now, I will mention Gerard Jones's name once during the episode when I read the issue's creator credits. That'll be it. You know, sometimes during an episode, we might chat about Keith Giffen or Bart Sears or tell a story about him, you know, or something like that. That will not be the case with Jones. Another change will be regarding the Boahaha Award. Typically, the biggest laugh of the issue comes from the script. Well, since Gerard Jones is writing these scripts, I prefer to focus less in this area. We'll continue with the Boahaha Award for Justice League America, but for Justice League Europe, going forward, instead, we'll feature something called the One Punch Award. Now, each issue, this award's going to be given to some moment in the issue that might be fantastic or shocking or dramatic, maybe funny, awe-inspiring, whatever. It's just a favorite moment from the issue. It might be something in the art. It might be something in the plot. It might even be something from the script. And if so, that's okay. These are fun comics, and they deserve to be celebrated. We're just opening up this award to be all-encompassing of the issue. Those are the changes we're going to be making, basically shifting the attention away from the person who wrote the scripts. Now, if you'd like to share your thoughts on Gerard Jones, go for it. That's what the comments section on our website's for. However, I do ask that we contain the comments to this singular episode. I'm dealing with it here, and I do not want to dwell on this going forward. In the following months and years, if anyone brings up their concerns with Gerard Jones and our coverage, I'm just going to point them to this episode, specifically to this opening that we're doing right now. So, that's it. This concern's been hanging over our heads or the Justice League Europe coverage for years. We've dealt with it now. It's done. Let's just leave behind the actions of one person and move forward celebrating the fun of these comics created collaboratively by a large group of really talented folks. All right, now, on with the show. This episode, Justice League America number 38 and Justice League Europe number 14, cover dated May 1990. Hello, and welcome to the 38th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Actually, this is like our 51st episode, with all the specials and annuals and stuff we've covered, but we always number the episodes based on the JLA issue that month. So last month was technically our massive 50th episode. I hope you guys all enjoyed the embossed foil cover. I thought it was shiny. So folks, my name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I am your host, but guess what? I have brought along some friends, and I really mean that this time. Each episode, I invite two different guest hosts to help me tackle a couple issues of JLI. We'll chat with my second co-host a little bit later, but for now, my first co-host today has been a buddy of mine for over 10 years. We just did the math on that, and it's making me feel really, really old. He's the co-founder of the Nerd Lunch Podcasting Empire. Uh, He's also the go-to source for food recommendations in my hometown, and I mean that. Seriously, you should check out his amazing food videos. And finally, we're all feeling he's taken his obsession with the Muppets just a little too far, because some days he's like Fozzie the Bear, and sadly, other days he's more like Statler. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Carlin Trammell. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Carlin. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. At least I was doing great until you mentioned the 10-year thing. Uh, <laughs> 10 years? Well, that means I was uh, only 67 when we met. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. If the internet's to be believed, uh, we met in a restaurant uh, <laughs> as you stumbled in on a lunch I was having. Right. But the reality is it was something more like uh, we were both impressed by the other's online presence. I mean, you being a major social media influencer for over 10 years now and me just being a nerd with a blog at the time and we just found out we both lived in the same town yeah and then we switched roles you became the influencer and i became just the 
nerd with a blog. I would love to live in the world where you think that's true. That would be <laughs> phenomenal. <laughs> so yeah, Carlin and I go back 10 years. We became kind of buddies. It's like we'd run into each other like in the bookstore and be like, hey man, how are you doing? Never be anywhere but the bookstore. <laughs> we'd catch up. We'd do a little convention talk. He'd be like, hey, great to see you. We should do something sometime. Neither one of us ever doing that, of course. And then, I don't know, what, a year ago? year and a half ago? It's like two years ago now, wasn't oh it? Oh my gosh, probably. I don't know. We started a role-playing group here in town, and now we role-play, sorry folks, it's Marvel, uh, Marvel superheroes role-playing uh, every couple of weeks, which is fantastic. That reminds me, I need to get my, my dice out. <laughs> in case you make me uh, roll for something. Here. I'll, let me roll real quick and see what I got. Uh, Perfect. I rolled a nine. Oh, I rolled a 93. That's good. See, this is all audio. I don't believe a word of that, so. <laughs> you shouldn't. That was your perception check to see if you thought Adam Hughes was a good artist. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we could sit here and make role-playing jokes all night long, but we'd save that for the Hero Points podcast. Instead, we should get rolling, folks. And before we get too far along, we do need to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each month, we select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. You know, sometimes it's tied into that JLI issue. Sometimes it's just something we want to talk about. I've got a pimp, the Justice League International Omnibus Volume 2 hardcover. It includes this issue we're going to talk about today. Actually, both issues we're going to talk about today, I should say. And it's it's finally available. People can get the uh, Omnibus Volume 2, get your own hands on it right now. These things are massive, folks. It is, uh, it's a thousand-something pages. I mean, Carlin could use it to kill a man, uh, which he's probably done on a few occasions. And it normally retails for $125, which is crazy. But right now in stock trades, it's 42% off, so you get it for $72.50. It includes, oh my gosh, Just League America 31 through 50. It's got Just League Europe 7 through 25. It's got the annuals of that time period, the quarterlies, the special. It is a massive, massive tome. Keith Giffen, James DiMatteis, Adam Hughes, Bart Sears, so many great names. Beautiful cover by Kevin McGuire. Uh, if you don't own these issues, you should pick it up. If you do own the issues, but you want a gorgeous collected edition, this is the way to do it, folks. So, Carlin, uh, no pressure on you, but everyone mm. else I know has brought an in-stock trades pick. Did you happen to bring one by chance? I did happen to bring one because I'm always looking at different comic book stores online saying, ooh, I want that, I want that, and building my little wish list that <laughs> I never always, I never quite get everything I want, but that's fine because it always, you know, it's always good to want more. I've seen your bookshelves collapse under their own weight, sir. So clearly <laughs> you buy enough to fill your shelves. I, or I buy cheap bookshelves. One <laughs> I should stop buying those Walmart bookshelves and get something decent. Uh, I chose the definitive Flash Gordon and Jungle Gem hardcover volume mm. one. This is IDW's Library of American Comics that is taking the original Flash Gordon and Jungle Gem topper. I don't, I, to be honest, I don't know much about Jungle Gem. This is another <laughs> character that Alex Raymond created. Alex Raymond, so good. Creator of Flash Gordon. They take all those uh, Sunday comics and put them together in these uh, big oversized champagne edition whatever that means it sounds pretty good uh, a book and it's got uh, there's I guess there's two volumes but I'm only going to pick one because I'm going to start with the beginning and so it's got all that original pulpy sci-fi Flash Gordon-y goodness usually if you went in and bought some something like this it would be $75 but in stock trades has got it for $52.50 which means it's still free shipping if you just buy this one item that's true 176 pages of Alex Raymond goodness I mean that's amazing now to be fair we didn't pick any cheap ones this time so 
sorry, guys. We only picked expensive books, but both of these sound really damn worth it. Man, Alex Rainer. Oh, my gosh. There's a name, really, that people don't talk about enough anymore. The guy is astonishing. No, and I mean, that goes back, what, 80, 90 years at this point? Maybe maybe more than that. Probably your teen years, I think. <laughs> yes, yeah. I remember <laughs> when I was 13 and getting right. Alex Raymond comic strips. <laughs> All right, folks, so you can get both of these and a million other books at InStockTrades.com. Please check them out. Folks, we also need to take a second to thank you folks at home for your support through Patreon. You know, running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows and all the hosting fees, it takes quite a bit. And honestly, the network would not be on the air without your help still. So we sincerely appreciate it. If you are looking to support a show like the JLI Podcast, please check it out our Patreon, which is Patreon.com slash FW Podcast. And if you support the network at certain tiers, uh, you'll be thanked on your show of choice. So our thanks to these folks who asked to be mentioned on the JLI podcast. Our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, Danny Dowell, David Ace Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Max Traver, Mike Zemkowski, Roger Preeb, Rudy Gastilio, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. I think Tim Price, did he pay extra because I get to say his name, too? <laughs> he may have. He may have. He's a good guy. I was just looking at this list going, I've actually hung out with a lot of these people. Maybe that's what it is. It's all blackmail on them. Uh, it makes them pick the JLI podcast. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, this is your chance to get out on the social media. Go out there. Uh, tag us, JLI podcast. Uh, you can use our hashtag, FW podcast. We want to hear your thoughts on this massively important issue of Justice League America. Now, Carla, normally I tell people, at the end ask you to pimp your stuff but tell them what your Twitter handle is being an influencer I want them to be able to tag you when they're talking about this stuff oh you can tag me on the uh, Twitter and Instagram at Nerd Lunch there we go folks again I know you guys are going to want to be talking about this issue because the, the, the fact is when people talk about Justice League International and the things they love they always talk about the great moments which are like One Punch Moving Day the launch of Justice League Europe Blue Beetle being brainwashed and the Despero storyline and this is it this is where it kicks off so I expect to hear from everyone on your thoughts on what you like what you didn't like because it's all about building a community of JLI fans around this show so get out there and let us know your thoughts also go out to our website which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI and share your thoughts on the show post. All right, folks, this is the part of the show where we are going to spend some time chatting with the guest and their history with the JLI. Now, I have to apologize in advance. It's my friend Carlin, so it's only going to be so interesting. But, uh, Carlin, could you please tell us how you found the JLI? What made you fall in love with the book? Sure. Well, I'll try and spruce it up a bit for you <laughs> so that it's not so boring. My age, I'm not really 67. Uh, back in 1985, I was, I was like nine or so. And you may remember these action figures that they were making at the time based on the art of like the super friends and the and sort of the, the jose luis garcia lopez art the Praise superpowers action figures superman and batman and green lantern the flash all these characters and they made they made I mean, these are some gorgeous action figures i loved them then i still have all of them from when i was a kid they're uh prominently displayed in my office here well done and um i uh, love them so much and so this is kind of where like it's it began it is because they had in the in the package for the first couple of years little mini comics mm. remember these oh yeah oh yeah little uh they did they were a little bit nonsensical I didn't care as a nine-year-old <laughs> <laughs> don't care now really i still think they're great um <laughs> On the back, there were a couple different options for subscriptions, and it made sense. Like, this was like, uh, hey, kids, you like these characters? Why don't you check out 
uh, the source material, sign up for a subscription. Get and... your copy of Atari Force when you buy the Green Arrow action figure. Okay, <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. I don't think they only, I think they had fairly, fairly limited. It was like Superman, Batman, and Justice League were the only things that they were kind of pushing. And so I was like, well, why would I choose Superman or Batman? That's just one character each. I'm going to choose Justice League of America because that's got them all. Woohoo! So I signed up for the subscription. Now, I wasn't aware of what was going on in the comics. I was a nine-year-old kid. I didn't really know. And so when I get my first issue in the mail, it comes in the brown. Do you remember those? Did you ever get subscriptions, Jack? I did. I had a subscription to Firestorm. So the brown wrapper. The yeah, brown I know. wrapper. Yep, yep. Oh, I, lo- I love that. And you, you just slide it right out. And so I get my brown <laughs> wrapper in the mail. Ooh, here it is. It's so exciting. Slides out. It's Justice League of America 239. On the cover is it's a solo shot of Vixen. And I'm like, I don't know who this is. This, I don't have this action figure. I don't know. I've never seen this person on a cartoon. Okay, well, it's fine. So I open up, I open the issue. I'm like, okay, well, it's okay. Let's, I'll figure out who this is. And uh, right off the bat in this issue, Superman, Flash, and Wonder Woman quit the league. I'm like, what? I have come <laughs> in at the wrong time. <laughs> and I keep reading, and it's there's characters in there. I've never, Vixen, Steel, Vibe, and Gypsy. I don't know who these guys are, but okay, so be it. I'm locked in for a year. And, you know, over time, I grew to like the characters. I was like, okay, this is kind of like my Justice League. Mm-hmm. And when it was time to renew... I renewed it, and I kept going for a while, and then eventually they canceled the the comic because they were going to relaunch, and I still had one more issue left on my subscription, and uh, the the fine folks at DC Comics said, well, we can't let this kid not get his full 12 issues, so they slid in to the brown paper wrapper Justice League 1, and that that's the my first exposure to this particular title was getting Justice League 1 in the mail. Wow. So did it make an impression on you as a 9 or at least 10-year-old boy by that point? Yeah, I thought that I remember really liking the art. I remember thinking the character selection was very interesting, uh, the especially because by that point I think like doc, you know Dr. Fate had an action figure, Mr. Miracle might have had one. I was like, "Oh, that's the yeah, they're pulling in some of those characters." And then I had also read the Legends miniseries mm, mm-hmm. and so I knew that was kind of jumping off into this title. Uh, some of those characters carried over into this. So yeah, it made an impression. I thought it was a good set of characters. And I didn't continue getting it regularly, but I would every so often, like at Walden Books or the grocery store, either flip through an issue or pick it up or something like that. And I have eventually gone back and filled in all the all the holes that I had. That's awesome. And folks, going in, I did not realize that Justice League Detroit was your first era. That's also my first era, and it really ties into this issue considerably. It so does. this is perfect to have it you is. on the show. It is just an absolute perfect... Uh, the stars are aligning. That's what's happening. Uh, mm-hmm. All the stars that Despero wants to destroy have aligned to have you here on this episode. It's absolutely awesome. Uh, the five little stars at the bottom of the Justice League America logo, It's they're, they're aligned now. That's what happened. Exactly. That's what it took to bring you here, and I'm glad it did. This is awesome. Well, why don't we get into the issue? Now, folks, if you want to see some of the pages from this issue, go out to our website. Again, firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI podcast. There will be some images on the image gallery. However, you could get this thing in the omnibus. You can buy a digital on Comixology. You can get a physical copy. It's not hard to find this thing, people. So get out and get a copy. If you haven't read it in a while, believe me, it is well worth it. Come this- by. I'll loan you mine. <laughs> Just swing by. 
while you're in town. Don't bother to tell me, though, folks, because I don't want to see you people. So <laughs> this is Justice League America, number 38, published by DC Comics, cover dated May 1990. On the shelves, March 13th, 1990. Cover price is $1 for shiny quarters and worth so much more than that in my heart. Covers by Adam Hughes and Joe Rubenstein. Carlin, would you please describe the cover for the people at home? Oh, absolutely. This cover is full of motion, uh, like the, the motion lines, and it's got a very dynamic snapshot of catastrophe. That's what I would say here. Mm. And so um, I know that there's some like some stuff leading up to this issue, but we had that nebulous figure uh, whom, r- upon reading this issue, we, we learn it's the Sparrow. He has come zooming down from the upper left, and he's now hit the center of this shot. And the action has created an explosion of movement as some of our heroes are thrown outward and captured in various unbridled poses. Prominently in the foreground of the lower right portion of the cover, we see ice. Moving in a clockwise rotation, we now see Martian Manhunter, and then above him, the legs of Guy Gardner. Directly on the opposite side of the cover from Gardner's legs, we see Mr. Miracle. Above him, way in the distance, is Booster Gold being flung far away. And below Mr. Miracle is the cape of Batman. And all throughout the cover are pieces of rock and rubble. And the background of this cover is a radial gradient beginning at the middle with an impactful white and moving out to a warm orange. Man, you should do all our cover descriptions. That was like a piece of that was like that was like poetry. Goodness gracious! <laughs> I, I it's funny until you just described it. I never noticed Booster Gold up there, and I never I'm noticed not- Bat- I never and I never noticed Batman's cape. I, ju- I just never picked up on that. Oh my gosh! Wow. Well, the, the only thing I want to say about this thing is just you can literally feel the concussive force of Despero's landing. Uh, it's difficult to show motion and power, you know, in a static image. But man, Adam Hughes just nails it, dude. I mean. It, you yes. can literally feel the blast. You can. You can. The only other thing I wanted to point out is his last appearance uh, back in the Detroit era was Justice League of America 254. And it has a very similar look as something that Despero is doing right in the middle and all the heroes are being flung out from the center. Mm. Check that out. That's interesting. Okay. I don't know if it was on purpose, but it's it's a happy accident there, if, if not. It could have very well be. You know, and it is also interesting how they've obscured Despero's face so that it, as you read the cover, it's not spoiled who the villain is. It's just a red blur. Yes. It's also interesting at, that we see a lot of characters on the cover that aren't even in the issue. So it's, <laughs> it's like one of those, this scene does not appear in yeah. this issue. <laughs> right, situations. right. I mean, Booster Gold's not even on the team at this point. Jeez. All right. Well, let's well, get in. that man on the team at this point? He is considered a part-time member. Uh, and I, I, I only know that. And then, uh, in, in full disclosure, folks, normally I only read the issues that we're covering. And I just wait for the next month to read the next one. Damn, I got done with this thing and I could not stop. I read the next two issues. I read the whole Despero saga. Immediately, I couldn't stop myself. And Batman does, in fact, later on say he's a part-time member. So... And by the way, that's a discussion we'll need to have. Uh, Despero, Despero, people say it different ways. I, I figure that's 20 minutes of this show is arguing about how you say it. <laughs> that's the plan. So let's get to it. Folks, the plot for this thing is by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus, penciler is Adam Hughes, inker's Joe Rubenstein, color is Gene D'Angelo. Letters are, check this out, the first five pages, they're actually typeset. What? Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. The rest of the issue is uh, lettered by Bob LePay 
Fan, Assistant Editor Kevin Dooley, Editor Andy Helfer. The issue itself uh, doesn't really have a name, but it pretty much is labeled as Spy. Uh, the issue starts with a five-page article, like a legitimate magazine article, from a fictitious magazine called Spy Magazine. The article is supposed to be written by someone named Wally Tortellini. And the article is based upon the garbage that Tortellini stole from the Justice League International over the last few issues. With the help of a doctor of urban anthropology from Gotham State University, Tortellini managed to piece together a lot of information about the team. They uncover that ruined industrialist Ted Kord is actually Blue Beetle, that Oberon has been hiding love letters from Big Barda in order to keep Scott free from returning home, that the mentally unstable Guy Gardner owes $50,000 for, quote, seven years of catatonic maintenance, and finally, that fire is actually former Brazilian Secret Service agent Beatriz de Costa. Uh, most of the rest of Tortellini's article is made up of uh, pretty much just snarky commentary. Ultimately, the magazine's editor refuses to print the story on orders from their European distributor, Vivian de Aramis, uh, who is secretly Crimson Fox, by the way, and Tortellini storms out and quits. Elsewhere, the alien menace Despero hurtles down from space, crash landing into a major city where he unintentionally snags a United Nations flag off a pole and wears it like a cape. Now, Despero is full of hate, so much so that he actually uses the word hate 15 times in this issue. Despero seeks the version of the Justice League that has most recently defeated him, unaware the Justice League Detroit team has long since been disbanded. Despero finds Hank Haywood III, formerly known as the Hero Steel. Uh, Steel is now reduced to being a brain-dead cyborg on life support. Robbed of his chance to make Steel suffer, Despero maliciously murders Steel and the nearby medical technicians. Elsewhere in New York, Booster Gold recruits an enthusiastic Maxi-Man to work with his new team and Claire Montgomery. Back to Despero, he... Are we going to argue about the pronunciation, or do we, do we just say it differently? I, I just, just, we say it differently every time. Despero. Back to Despero as he moves on to Gypsy, another Justice League Detroit member. Despero brutally murders her suburban parents and then waits for Gypsy to get home. The alien morbidly poses the dead parents to appear as if nothing is amiss. As Gypsy arrives at home, she's grateful for school being easy compared to her former life on the streets and with the JLA. Once she discovers her father isn't simply watching TV, but actually dead. Despero blasts from behind. Gypsy evades and leaps through a nearby window. Despero explodes her home and blasts nearby homes in an attempt to kill her. Using her chameleon powers, Gypsy manages to sneak away. Despero tears apart the town looking for her, finally catching up to her on a commuter train. Despero stands in front of the train tracks, derailing the train. Gypsy breaks her leg in the crash, but maintains her invisibility. Despero threatens to kill other survivors of the train crash if Gypsy does not reveal herself, and she complies. With Gypsy flat on the ground, about to be murdered at Despero's hands, in a full splash page, Martian Manhunter arrives and says, There will be no more deaths today, Despero, except perhaps yours. That didn't sound anything like Carl Lumley. <laughs> I wasn't going to try. <laughs> Next issue, Blood and Thunder. Man, this issue was massive. I mean, so, so important in the mythos of JLI. What did you think of it, buddy? I thought it was a uh, yeah, very suspenseful, very engaging, and very good page-turner. It's a very page-turner-type yeah, yeah. issue. Yeah, for, for a comic that is normally a sitcom, you know, this is nothing like what you would expect from a typical JLI issue. This is a huge departure. 
Exactly. It feels to me like a jumping on point. So if somebody mm. had been reading along and they're like, ah, you know what, I think I'll check out this Justice League comic book series, this would be a great place to jump on because what you kind of have with that spy magazine piece is, hey, here's a bunch of exposition about the characters. Here's what you would need to know. This is kind of what it's been. But then there's a stark tonal shift <laughs> after that scene with the spy magazine guys. And then it's like just straight up murdering uh, for the rest of the issue. <laughs> well, I think that's what part of what why the Spy Magazine works so expertly, because it is a good representative of the comedy sitcom feel of the JLI. And that levity at the beginning is done so perfectly in order to contrast with just how dark and dark and ugly this issue goes. I mean, really, I think the contrast is, works well. You couldn't just come from Justice League America 37 and go right into this without some sort of transition that's like the Spy Magazine piece. You couldn't just jump right into the, the murdering and it worked. That's fair. And you, and you mentioned about the cover, how like that was the only appearance of the characters. I mean, that makes perfect sense that, you know, in, if, since this was really Despero's story, this issue, or Despero, whatever, uh, that that was a good way to sort of wedge the, the, the JLA, JLI members in. Absolutely. Yeah, the cover, yeah, the cover has to pull them in because you only have, uh, what, besides Guy Gardner on the cover of Spy, you have a scene with Booster Gold and then you have that splash page at the end with with John Jones, and that's that's it. Yeah. Well, before we get into the, the blood and guts, why don't we talk about the Spy Magazine stuff for a minute? I, I thought it was hilarious. I mean, I genuinely thought it was really funny. And maybe it's because I had I haven't gone back and read up recently. I just for this issue for this uh, podcast, I just focused on this issue, mm-hmm. and so I don't know if it really meshed with me. Some of it was uh. some of it was entertaining and it was good like i said it was very much like an expository piece of like okay now i get what's going on or i remember oh yes i remember this was happening with ted cord or this happened with guy gardner it was much more like just explanation than it was uh, i found humorous if they put more waka wakas in it would you liked it more they needed much more ah waka waka <laughs> Well, I, I think another thing that sets this up, too, uh, is one of the quotes in there. This is literally the quote. They fight bad guys, or, or so we've heard. We've never actually seen them fight anyone but each other. And that completely sets up this story arc, because that's pretty true. Most issues, they're you know, it's, it's a sitcom and them arguing with each other. And they got lots of complaints about that over the years. And from what I understand, Andy Helfer really wanted the Justice League to have a full-on action fighting bad guy story. And so this piece sort of reminds you, hey, we never fight bad guys. And then that's exactly what they do for three issues. So I feel like the Spy Magazine, again, sets it up perfectly. You just don't like it because you're dead inside, and that's fine. Uh, A little bit, yeah. (laughs) Now, now I asked J.M.D. Mateus and Adam Hughes uh, just recently about this on Twitter, and I asked them how this was done, because normally the way the JLI books were done is Keith Giffen would draw the breakdowns uh, and kind of plot it out, send it to the artist and and J.M.D. Mateus, and the artist would draw it, and J.M. Mateus would do the script. And I asked him, was it it different for the Spy Magazine? And uh, both of them kind of copped the fact that it's been 30 years and they don't necessarily remember all the details of it. But James D. Mateus did say that he thought maybe Andy Helfer had a hand in some of the text. He said there were certain jokes like Dwayne Lombago reference he thought probably was him meaning James D. Mateus himself, but he couldn't swear for sure. Adam Hughes said that he always had Giffen drawn layouts to work from and that's how he plotted the story, so he assumed that's probably true in this case. Uh, and he said that the guy Gardner face on the front was penciled by Adam Hughes and then painted by Joe Rubenstein, which is pretty amazing. Oh, wow. Thanks so much to J.M.D. Mateus and Adam Hughes for you know responding to this dork's questions 35 years or whatever after they did these comics, or 30 years. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate that. 
That, uh, that Guy Gardner painting is really amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking looks, at it now. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's really good. There's, it's, this is maybe not interesting to anyone but me and Carlin. In the, in the article, they reference a company called Heroic Images Incorporated. It's just thrown in there as a joke. But I went ahead and Googled the company just out of curiosity to see if it ever existed. I was thinking of like those trading cards, comic images, trading cards. Anyone wondering, you know, connection, whatever. The only Heroic Images Inc. I could find as a corporation anywhere on the internet bizarrely enough, happens to have been founded in Carlin and I's hometown. So how, what What a bizarre coincidence. And did you even see what they did? No, I couldn't tell. I couldn't figure it out. Yeah, I wasn't sure either. Oh, okay. You know, what I think is pretty fun is when people go on Redbubble or places like that and they make t-shirts based on obscure brands like that. Like, I think we need a Heroic Images t-shirt or coffee cup <laughs> or something. I know a guy who's done some pretty obscure logo uh, merchandise. Yes, yes. <laughs> What, do you, what is a couple of the ones you've done? Well, my my best one is from the show Quantum Leap. Woo-hoo! I made one of... So at one point, that character Sam Beckett leaps into a glitter rock band named King Thunder. And they have logos <laughs> throughout the episode. And I grab screenshots and I painstakingly trace the King Thunder logo. And like you can get it on t-shirts or stickers. Just look for King Thunder. It's out there. That's awesome. That is absolutely awesome. Well, the only other thing I'll say about this spy magazine piece before we move on is there's a bit here at the end where the article gets nixed and they say it's the European distributor. And it's Vivian de Aramis who says that she's killed it and she's French and in her head she's thinking to herself that she wants to kill it because she's the Crimson Fox. And unless I'm mistaken, that is actually the very first confirmation of the secret identity of Crimson Fox. Now, we suspected it because both Vivian and Crimson Fox were kind of in an issue or two. Like, okay, that's probably her. But this is the first time it's actually confirmed. And it's not even a Just Like Europe issue that confirmed it. It was Just Like America. So uh, I feel like the European team lost lost the opportunity there. Remind me, and I could be misremembering, weren't there two people who were the Crimson Fox? Spoilers! Uh, but okay, yes. You can, you can edit that out. No, it's <laughs> fine. It's been 30 years. Everyone knows by now. <laughs> At this point, I don't know that they'd even decided that uh, as a creative team, because I don't think we'd seen Constance at all yet. I think we'd only seen Vivian. Uh, we'd seen a couple different personalities, but I think that may have been just writers not sure what to do with her. But either way. Okay, well, so we uh, yeah, we get into Despero. He's, he's landing on uh, Earth. I guess he's, he's somehow attracted to the soul essences of the people who he is <laughs> has a bloodthirst for. Yeah. And for some reason, Hank Haywood III, a.k.a. Steel, who had been killed in one of the last two or three issues of Justice League of America. Uh, it, it turns out he isn't actually fully dead. They've got him in like a life support chamber in the United Nations. Is that what's happening? Well, I don't I, understand that. I, I, think what's hap- I think what's happening is this is a major city. I don't know what city it's supposed to be. They don't tell us. I first, I thought it'd be Detroit, but maybe it's New York, whatever. He clearly crashes through a United Nations flag. So there's some representation of United Nations nearby. So he crashes and then he goes and storms into this other building, which is nearby. So I think it's probably like a, a Haywood Industries building, probably because uh, Hank's grandfather was crazy rich. And I want to say they put him in. Wow. It's been a while since I read that last issue of Just League Detroit. When I re- read Just Like Detroit recently. I only read the Conway issue, so I didn't finish it up. But I want to say he was put in life support in, in one of their places. So that's probably where they are, is a Haywood okay. Industries place. Yeah, I think I think you're right. There was some sort of keeping him uh, in storage in case they needed to bring him back out. I just found it interesting that it was from, from the page, it looked like he's crashed into the United Nations, and then that's
that's where Hank is. But that that's that makes sense. He's, he's moving <laughs> on. Uh, the other aspect of it is the where he says, "I know you were here. I feel your presence in my mind." Mm-hmm. But uh, then he's essentially also admitting like you're dead like you i wanted the the pleasure of killing you already dead the machine with some sort of life support so there there seems to be is like he's actually still alive because that called out to Despero. but like so all this time has he like for these last six years has he been his soul or essence has been still trapped in this body and now Despero's is actually finally letting him free you know now that you say it i guess that's true yeah I, I don't know whether he necessarily had brain activity but yeah it would imply that his soul and everything's still trapped inside that wrecked frame yeah oh so so sad yeah, I, it just adds to the the tonal shift the haunting nature of the story having just reread all those Jerry Conway Justice League Detroit issues. This this issue really hits home for me hard because I just read these things like in the last month or so. So it, it's really upsetting uh, going through all this. Um, I, I do want to comment about Despero for our Despero whatever for a second here. He is a massive, massing, hulking figure here. I mean, he's huge. When he last appeared in Justice League Detroit, they had spun his fin. Uh, I like to think they just smacked it and they just spun around. But anyway, they spun his fin from side to side instead into more like a fin mohawk, which is what he has here. But here, Adam Hughes has just bulked the dude up like like the Hulk size. And that kind of look's going to stay. I mean, he's going to be kind of the massive, beefy-looking Despero from now on. And they United Nations flag just looks so boss on him. It looks so cool. And it's a nice touch given that they're Justice League International and they're connected through the UN Charter. It just it all fits together really nicely. Yes, it is a great look uh, for Despero. And Adam Hughes nails that. I mean, just the, the dynamic nature. that, that co- We talked about it, that dynamic nature of the cover. That's throughout this whole issue. Each of these panels of the motion and the movement as he's bouncing around and flying around and crashing through things. It's just that just it's so dynamic. Look at the shadowing effect on page 11. Right after he's killed Steel, but before he leaves that building, he's smashing all kinds of machines. And, but all these these shadow effects, like there's a bright light shining beneath him and there's all this shadow flashing up on him. It's just, wow, it's astonishing. Yes, great. Yeah, great inking and everything too. Uh, well, I guess, the, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about that one little page with uh, Booster Gold. I mean, for me, this, like I said, I really focused on this one issue. So this seems to have been coming out of something and setting something else up. Yeah. I, you know, this didn't really do a whole lot for me, but uh, that would be sort of the next piece of this story. Yeah, it, it's definitely like, it's not even the B plot, it's the C plot, probably, of, of the story here. Uh, Booster quit the team a while back, and now he's working with this Claire Montgomery, mysterious Claire Montgomery, to form a new team of his own. And here he's recruited Maxi Man, uh, who's from the Mr. Miracle series. And uh, the, the, the funny bit to me here is the, the name of the restaurant's a pun. It's supposed to be a Greek restaurant, but it's, uh, if you pronounce it, it's eat a bite of pie. Uh, which is kind of clever. This is the second issue in a row, though, where he's gone to a funny name restaurant. The last one was called it was a French restaurant. It was called Chez What. So they, they, those jokes continue. But yeah, it, it does. If you're reading it just for the Despero story, it sticks out like a sore thumb. No doubt about that. Which is funny because Chez What is where we, you and I first met. That is true. <laughs> At least according to the fake uh, re- video we recorded for Nerd Lunch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we, our acting pedigrees was on display there, sir. That's right. Uh, So then I guess it moves into the suburban home of the parents of Gypsy, who they still, I guess they call her Gypsy. I find that odd. Is there anything, explanation on that? uh, Why they call her Gypsy? Yeah, for you readers at home. (laughs) If they said Cynthia, we'd be like, who the hell is Cynthia? So yeah, it's it's absolutely just for the reader at home. It's got to be. It's a shortcut. Uh, And and, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning too here that like, uh, Giffen and Dimatea is here. They just assume we know as readers who Steel and Gypsy is. They, they don't. I mean, 
there's enough backstory, like, or I shouldn't say backstory. There's enough emotion in the story that you can still follow along, but they're just assuming you know the Steel and Gypsy are former members of the League, and you kind of understand he was a cyborg. You understand what her powers are. They they don't they don't take time to, to teach you that, and I don't think it's a problem. I don't know. Did you stumble over that at all? Well, I I didn't because I knew who they were. But I, I think you're right because it's it's been a four four or five years since mm-hmm. they would have been prominent. But I, I I do like that they don't really go into it. It's like you you get what you need to know. If you know more, great. If you don't know more, you don't need it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm telling you folks, when I invited Jerry Conway on last episode to talk about Just Like Detroit, I didn't even remember that Gypsy and Steel were so important in the storyline. I was focused on the conglomerate stuff. So uh, what a coincidence to have Jerry last month just in time for this issue. So just in time. I, I mean, it was all planned. <laughs> yeah, like like you planned it all along. Just like mm-hmm. a Hannibal Smith or something. <laughs> so, yeah, Gypsy comes in. I think it's interesting that, that both her parents and her are kind of always talking about the fact that she used to be a superhero. Hmm. Again, I got to assume that's just trying to inform the audience without spending too much time giving exposition. I, that's I, what I think. I agree. I agree. I understand the, the narrative reason. I just, I do like the idea, though, that she is obsessed with the fact that she's not a superhero anymore. Every day she's walking home with that stack of books. She can't even afford a, a book bag. She's holding <laughs> the books and the papers, all all like that. Got her keys out, you know, worried about dropping them all. And she's just like, I'm so glad I'm not a member of the Justice League anymore. Every day. <laughs> Well, you know, everyone's got pieces of their past that they carry with them, and they may not think about it every day. Uh, in this case, obviously, she is for our benefit. But yeah, we've all got parts of our past we don't think about. What about you, sir? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like when I was, uh, I used to be an intern in Marvel Comics. I think about that every day. Every day I think about it. Intern at Marvel Comics? Oh, my gosh. How, how long did you do that for? I was an uh, intern for uh, four months. I changed the direction of the whole company. That's a, that must have been when Heroes World happened. Way to go. You bankrupted Marvel. <laughs> That's what I, I'm saying, yes. I was going to give you props for uh, having seen the Carrie Nord Micronauts pages, but whatever. Okay. The unpublished Micronauts pages. Unpublished, yes. Yeah. I was working with the office that was going to bring back the Micronauts, and then they ran into legal issues, and uh, I'm like one of seven people who've seen the, seen the art. It's it's the only reason we're friends, really, uh, is I just want to be close to that energy. But anyway. You want, a, you want another peek at the uh, Micronauts art. Exactly right. So, all right, since we're talking about this, I mean, dude, page 14, when Despero kills Gypsy's parents, that is seriously horrifying. Just sick. It is probably the most bloodthirsty and malicious moments of this entire run. It's got to be. Oh, it's horrific. Yeah, it's uh, it's surprising, like especially considering like my the way my origin story uh, with Justice League started is like I'm a nine year old kid picking up these comics. By this point, I would have been older, but you know that's that's these are out here like on Walden books. <laughs> shelves or grocery store shelves for kids to just pick up and I it's a little it's a little dark. Yeah, this is way dark. And I and I don't think Just League goes even the rest of the issues in this saga aren't this dark. Uh, you know, throw in Steel's brain dead injury uh, murder and I mean, wow, th- this this issue is like a horror comic, I mean practically. And then not only does he just snap the the dad's neck like no big deal, uh but then he goes through the effort of posing oh. her dad and and doing minor repair 
repairs on the house, so she doesn't know he's just smashed through the house. He's like out there with the hammer, and <laughs> so he's got a lumber. <laughs> I have to go to the hardware store. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just gross, man. It's like a Freddy Krueger Nightmare on Elm Street kind of thing, you know? Yes, absolutely. That's what actually. That's a great. I didn't even really thought. That's what, exactly what this is. It's very much like a horror story. Uh, once she shows up, everyone's dead. She's on the run. You're you've got that whole like. Is she gonna get away? She even break, you know, breaks her leg at one point, and it's that, that all that suspense is all very much uh, like a, a 1980s horror film. Yeah, and, and I think the stuff at her house was on purpose, to, uh, meaning doing it there, like because it sort of continues the sitcom vibe, or not say, but the suburban settings. It makes you feel comfortable, you know. And then once Despero invades her home and destroys it, destroys the homes around it, it makes it feel more real, as if like it could happen to you, the reader, at your own house. So it makes it even more scary, more real. And he's just he's just toying with her you know that yeah page uh, 16 that first panel like you said the shadows the shadows on gypsy but then behind her you just see the three eyes and the outline of despero and he says daddy is dead child (laughs) what What? (sighs) glad yeah glad those 11 year olds are picking these things up off the shelves perfect i'm not sleeping tonight right therapy bill sorry parents as this is all leading to the giant ending, uh, the amazing final splash page. But they do set it up earlier. They, they mention, as uh, Gypsy says, that she gets a letter from Marsh Manhunter every couple weeks. So early on, they're setting up this friendship between her and Marsh Manhunter, which works for carrying us through to the ending. Yeah, and that and I think that, I mean, you mentioned having read the Detroit issues, and, and my recollection is that, that Marsh Manhunter is very much sort of like the father figure of, of those four newer characters. That, that would make sense to me that he's still going to kind of touch base with them and follow up and make sure that that, that Vixen and Gypsy were, were doing okay after everything. Yeah, they had a similar sort of touching moment when the Suicide Squad and the Justice League crossed over uh, between Marsh Manhunter and Vixen. So it, yeah, there's definitely a sort of connection and considering Vixen and Gypsy are really the last ones left from that league, uh, he's very protective of them. Yeah. Mm. Well, the, the whole tie-in of the story in Marsh Manhunter and Gypsy and and Steel, like I, you had mentioned having just read some of these uh, issues lately. Now, I guess was, yeah, Jerry Conway wrote the last time the Despero showed up. Correct. That was then. That was the end of his run. Okay, so that have been two fifty one, two fifty two, two fifty three, and two fifty four. And that roster did include those four we've talked about: Vibe, Vixen, Steel, and Gypsy. And Martian Manhunter was on the team. Elongated Man and Batman was on the team uh, during that piece, that that little run. And then Zatanna was as well, but she was not a part of this uh, encounter because she had been abducted by some other villain and was. Oh. With the team. Adam. Ugh. Yeah, so folks, if you haven't read those issues that Carlin just called out, the Despero Saga is probably considered the peak of the Just League Detroit era. It's so damn good. And it's a great lead up to this, too, because you get the characters, you get the, the Despero and all that. It's so, so freaking good. They should do a little trade paperback with those four issues and then, like, these three issues. Oh. Just that, collect it all together. That'd be nice. That would be a good collection. Yeah. Huh. Now, it's worth mentioning. You know, I mentioned earlier about how the, the heroes of the Just League don't typically fight supervillains anymore. So there, there's an interview in Back Issue Magazine number three, going all the way back to 2004. They interviewed J.M. DiMatteis and Keith Giffen, and they talked about the Despero storyline. Giffen said, uh, and I'm quoting here, the Despero storyline was one that Andy Helfer really thought we needed as a, it was a knockdown, drag-out superhero, supervillain fight, and it kind of was. Then J.M. DiMatteis goes on to th- say, and this is interesting, one thing about that story, even then, I was writing that as a satire. All the Despero dialogue was kind of like satire of, of a Frank Miller kind of thing, and also my own craven, intent, brooding inner dialogue. 
Wow. I mean, and, unless you know that, you probably don't realize that J.M. DeMatteis was trying to, you know, lampoon this stuff. And once you read the dialogue from Despero, it sort of makes sense. You know, he, he is very much over the top, like way, way, way over the top in the way he talks. And so here, I'll, I'll read you some example in the, in the caption boxes. I have traveled all this way to destroy the Justice League, and this is what I find. I am Despero. I live only to hate. My hate must have expression. It will. It will. He uses hate in almost every word balloon. He's so angry, and it's so over the top, and all inner monologuing. And um, then he goes on to talk about how stupid love is and everything. So once you know that, and you go back and read it, you can absolutely see that James DeMatteis was sort of making a satire of, again, Frank Miller or his own Craven the Last Hunt kind of stuff. It's interesting. It changes the sort of nature of it. Because even Giffen said um, that he thought the story came back unrecognizable. Like, he didn't know what Adam Hughes was doing. So between Adam <laughs> Hughes doing this and J.M. DeMatteis mocking it, and yet and all of us didn't pick up on it. We all just thought it was like the most horrifying, violent, brooding story ever. Uh, it's this whole interesting mix match of everyone had different and things they were trying to do, but everyone took out of it what they wanted, so everyone walked away happy, I guess. So right, there, there, yeah, there are things like that that, like especially with things like camp, like there, if you think of the early Batman '60s era mm-hmm. show, like it's very much camp, but it's played so straight that if you were to just read the script without any inflection, any actors, you would be like, oh yeah, it's just you know played straight. Yeah, uh, or like the you know going back to Flash Gordon, like the 1980 Flash Gordon, yeah, it's camp, but it's you could step back and say no it's played straight like this is very much like that tone of like i'm reading it thinking it's being played straight but with that that comment you're making i'm like oh no it's kind of trying to be a little bit campy did you just call my beloved flash gordon camp but it has elements of camp and you know i i love flash gordon as well you know i have nothing but love in my heart for that movie you better have fear of me in your heart right now, Carlin, is all I'm saying. Because we don't, this is not a safe space to hate on Flash Gordon. So. No, there's no hate at all. All right. None. Zero hate. No, all all love. I don't I don't say hate 15 times about Flash Gordon. I only say <laughs> 15 times about Flash Gordon. Who wants to live forever? Dive! <laughs> all right. Um, also, I got to give credit, by the way, to past guest of the show, Diablo Frank, uh, and his Martian Manhunter blog, Idlehead of Diablo, because much of this recap was boldly stolen from them. There. So thank you, Frank. I appreciate that. Thanks for doing the hard work and lifting for me, buddy. <laughs> this seems to set the stage for the tradition of going back and offing characters from a previous iteration of the Justice League. Uh. I was, as I was rereading this, I was reminded of JLA One with um, the the uh, Grant Morrison Howard Porter run of JLA Mm -hmm. and in issue one they uh something happens to the satellite or whatever they were using at the time and I think it's like Metamorpho and Ice Maiden and Nuclon and I don't know a bunch bunch of people that have been on the Justice League (laughs) right and and something happens to them and they're basically all like almost murdered or I think Metamorpho was rendered quote inert and uh, I was like oh this this is kind of kind of a thing we do we just go back at some point and Kill off the old Justice League. Wow. I uh, I had completely forgotten that that's how that issue goes. Uh, hopefully they killed that little dinosaur bird guy that I can't remember his name. He was like their sidekick. It was. <laughs> oh, I don't think they killed him, but they should oh, have. Oh, man. I, I'm ashamed that I can't even remember the character's name because I, used, I usually mock him. So, oh, well. Well, overall, this was an astonishing issue. Just absolutely amazing. It was so different than what we had read before on Justice League. I think that's why it resonates with so many people. We got two more issues 
issues of this to go. Actually, it's kind of interesting. This issue was really more like half an issue of Despero, and then the third issue in it is also just half issue of Despero, so it's really only like two issues spread across three. But either way, a powerful, powerful story, and I, I absolutely loved it. I, I hope you enjoyed this look back at it, Carlin. I did as well, and I and I think I mean I've mentioned before this last page. I think you mentioned it as well. This last page is worth the price mm. of the entire book. This uh, I don't know if Martian Manhunter has ever looked better than he does in this last page. He looks amazing, and he he literally threatens Despero's life. I mean, Martian Manhunter, this person of peace, is threatening to murder someone. It's like wow, this just right. got serious. Yes, this is, this is not about Oreos. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, folks, uh, we're going to move on to our next segment. This is where we're going to talk about the... Plahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. This issue is a little hard because there's not a lot of ha-ha. Uh, both myself and Carlin will pick a moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Boahaha Award. Carlin, you're the guest, unfortunately, for everyone listening. What is your pick for the Boahaha Award? I'm, you're right, this is very difficult. I did not come up with something until the last minute. I've been thinking about it for so long. I think I'm going to go with the random drive-by comparison between Guy Gardner and a pineapple. <laughs> That's Just a good one. Out of the blue, for no reason, it's like they have this little segment in Spy Magazine, separated at birth, and they have Lex Luthor and Big Sur, Superman, and Clark Kent, Guy Gardner, and a pineapple? I, why? It doesn't make any sense. I think it's clever, so that's my nomination. I like that. I think it's the hair, though, in the pineapple uh, sort of leaves, I think, is where they're going. But yes, it's uh, it's a lot of the same personality, that's for sure. Mine also comes from Spy Magazine, again, because that's pretty much the only humor in here, is when they call out Blue Beetle. They say, here, I'll read from it, Ted Cord, particularly mean-spirited readers may recall, went totally bankrupt some time ago after his meteoric rise to the top of the high-technology world. Those among us who wanted to mercilessly taunt the one-time high-tech wonderkind wondered where he disappeared to immediately thereafter. Now we know, as do hundreds of Mr. Cord's creditors. Be gentle, boys. I found that pit pretty darn funny. That, but, that was clever. Yeah, that was good. So we have to decide which is better, the pineapple or the uh, be gentle creditors comment. I can be swayed. I can be easily swayed. I mean, the pineapple's good. That's You get your uh, Adam Hughes art there, but that was clever writing there with the uh, Ted Cord creditors piece. I totally go with that. You know, I like to win. I said that a few times lately, and I don't usually win when we role play. Uh, I lose mercilessly, so I will take the win. I'm going to take it. So congratulations, Ted Cord. You have won the coveted Bwahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Maybe next time, pineapple. <laughs> it's not not an episode of Psych. Uh, Carlin, I need to ask a favor. So oh, this sure. whole this whole spy magazine expose thing, uh, it came about from this reporter rummaging through the JLI embassy trash. Just to ensure we don't get another magazine expose written about him, would you mind sitting here and guarding the embassy trash for a little while? You want me to guard the trash? Ah. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Absolutely. I can guard the trash. Ah. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I did not get that the first time. So I did it again, just for you. Great. So I'm not going to say I love you, but I do say we only have 14 hours to save the Earth. So uh, (laughs) don't worry, Carlin. We will bring you back at the end of the show. Oh, I can't wait. And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy for the 14th issue of Justice League Europe. Welcome, one and all, to the Fire and Water Racetrack and Arena. Please direct your attention to the center of the track where you will see 36 buses lined up between two ramps, a tank full of live man-eating sharks and a high wire stretching over it all. The rocket cycle is warmed up and all the nets have been removed. 
Who would attempt these stunts just to entertain and inspire his audience? What kind of man? What kind of hero? There, coming in on a rocket-powered skateboard, it's the death-defying human flycast! Join me, Max Romero, and a rotating roster of guests as we dive headfirst into the colorful comics of Marvel's The Human Fly. The death-defying Human Flycast is a limited episode podcast spotlighting the adventures of a man who comes back from a crippling auto accident to become a mysteriously masked stuntman with a mission to inspire others to never give up hope. We'll also talk about the real-life Human Fly, a daredevil with a murky past and a desire to be the best stuntman in history until the day he just disappeared. The actual Human Fly would vanish as suddenly as he had materialized, but not before sparking a comic series featuring what would be the wildest superhero ever, because he was real. The Death Defying Human Flycast, coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's gonna be wild. And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number 14. break and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. Now, I promised earlier that both co-hosts today are friends of mine. That might have been a little bit of a stretch. This co-host is more like a frenemy. <laughs> uh, we, we've been aware of each other for about 10 years, but truly we didn't become friends till six years ago when she foolishly invited me to be a guest on her podcast, and her show has never been the same since. Now, in addition to being a podcaster, she's also a literary enthusiast, a comic book journalist, and she was a speaker at the Bowling Green State University Popular Culture Conference. She's pretty amazing, folks, and if you ever get a chance to meet her person. She'll actually have to stand on a step stool just to look you in the eye. Folks, please help me welcome to the show my friend, Stella. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Stella. Thanks for being here. How you doing? I have three things to say to you. Number one, <laughs> you're a despicable human being and I despise you. That is true. Number two, I'm glad I'm coming on after the episode with Dr. Swartz Levine because she's cleaned up the place from the, the misogyny and the toxic masculinity. So now I can actually <laughs> breathe and number three. That is also true. <laughs> Finally, I'm invited on here. When you started the blah, blah, blah podcast, I begged you to be on. And oh, it my took God. Years. It took years oh. for you to finally invite me on for some issue. People, you are being lied to <laughs> right now at this very moment. I uh, met Stella face to face in 2016 at a Mexican restaurant. And while we're there, I invited her to be on the show. And she looked at me and said, no. No, I've, I've never read that. And that was it. I, I then would invite her about every year. She'd always say, no, nah. I wasn't even like, oh, thanks. That's kind of you. Just no. And it was always called the blah, blah, blah podcast by her. And and finally, I twisted her arm. She's like, okay, whatever. I'll do it. And then she just lied to your faces. Talk about being morally bankrupt. Wow. <laughs> 
Yeah, here I am. Well, you know, real talk. I have what what is known as like the fraud syndrome or whatever. I felt like oh, I've never read that. What could I really add to this show? So that's why I was nervous about it. But I feel like after we go through my history of this, that I will represent myself well and do the best I can. So thank you for being patient with me and continuing to press the invitation. I feel welcomed and gracious for the invitation, and I'm sure that'll wear off very quickly. But uh, <laughs> here we are <laughs> to talk some Justice League Europe. If there's one word to describe our many-year friendship, I think patience is probably the word. <laughs> that might be true. <laughs> On both our parts. How's that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let's get right into your origin. So, Stella, what is your personal origin with the JLI besides the fact that I think I'm the first person who ever mentioned it to you? Tell me, what have you read? When did you come? to it. And, you know, all right, folks, the short answer is you never read the stupid comic, but uh, (laughs) what was your familiarity with the characters before diving in? Yeah. So I'll say at least with this particular run that we're doing, I had no history with it. So we could say that this is my history, but in preparation for this, I actually read all of the previous issues. Let me start by saying Justice League Europe, number one. So I went one through 14. And then of course there were two, I'll put in quotation marks, cross crossovers with Justice League America. So I at least feel confident in, you know, discussing some of the characters and some of the arcs and things that went through, which I'm actually happy that I did because I think there are some themes that even in in this issue pop up again. But with the characters, I've known, I would say, all the characters pretty well. Uh, one okay. of my favorite stories, actually. People who listen to me know that I'm the queen of, like, con- counter opinions. Batman and Robin's my favorite Batman film. You know, I like things like that. <laughs> So Identity Crisis is actually one of my favorite stories. So to actually see in real time the relationship between Ralph and Sue has actually been really rewarding to to read that through. So I would feel like the only person on the team I might be less aware of is the Russian whose name... Rocket Red. Yeah, Rocket Red. There we go. And then Captain Adam, I mostly know from the Justice League cartoon. But like everyone else I've known just in different contexts. But this book itself basically starting Friday, my history was was very brand new. So here we are. Okay. All right. So I appreciate you taking the deep dive. So it's interesting because the Justice League Europe comic was sort of a bit of a response to the Justice League America comic. Like this one was supposed to be more serious. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, that wasn't necessarily the case with a lot of the issues. Certainly this issue is silly. The issue before this was silly. Mm-hmm. But you now you stopped at 14. What you don't know is the next five issues are deadly serious. Okay. Um, very, very serious. I so, thought it was another crossover, and I thought, I don't have time for that right now. It's actually not a crossover. It's all in just in the Justice League Europe oh, book. So okay. it goes for five issues. They introduce a, a group of bad guys, and uh, it gets, it's going to get dark, folks. So what was your opinion? Did you enjoy the previous 13? I mean, we'll talk about issue 14, obviously, but did you enjoy the previous 13 issues? Any standout issues? Any standout characters? Yeah, I did enjoy the the previous 13, I guess, that we have. I think there are, overall, I think it is pretty silly, but there are also some really poignant moments. I'm thinking about Rex once he gets his memory back. I mean, that whole issue was like, look at all this hilarity. You've got Sapphire just trying to get him back and crying. He's like, please don't cry. And then you find out, I don't know why, she married Java. And then all of that hijinks is ensuing. And then at the very end, there's this really calm and still moment where I believe it's Captain Adam 
Luke comes up to Rex and says, you need anything? And because he's got his memory back, he had a life, he has a child and, and there's like nothing much that he can do about that. And then you get hit recently, I guess it was this previous issue, wasn't there too, before that Buddy has lost his entire family, a lot of Beatles dealing with some PTSD. And so there are some things in the background that pop up and, and I think they lend well to some of the storytelling. I have to say that Flash is a really unlikable character. And this yep. is coming from someone who doesn't like Guy Gardner, which by the way, I feel vindicated in not liking Guy Gardner because in the previous crossover with quotation marks where there's the flurkin that appeared and he's <laughs> causing chaos, Guy Gardner is like fanboying over Simon Stagg. And I'm like, anyone who fanboys over Simon Stagg has to be a terrible human being. So there you go. Yep. But Flash, w- Wally West is terrible. I, I feel like it's a mischaracterization, but he's definitely a misogynist and like he's only... Uh, he feels like Booster Gold. He's only, he only cares about money and women, basically. And I'm like, who are you? And there was that really nice issue between him and Ralph, because Ralph and really everyone else says, like, you're no Barry. And it's really getting on Wally. And then they have that sort of bromancy moment where they uh, they both exchange stories, their favorite stories of Barry. And, and then they reach this understanding. And so that was really nice. But then we're like, we're back to this here. Well, here he's not as much of a, a pig, but he is. I don't know. He kind of seems like a really angry jerk. So I'm I'm really confused about the Wally West character. But otherwise, yeah, like I said, the, the Ralph and Sue stuff has been great to see that in real time. Captain Adam. Aren't Ralph and Sue just adorable? They sure are. And and I like how when he twinkles his nose, everyone's like, that's super gross. And he says, <laughs> well, Sue loves it. And then someone like some other character will be like, that's not what she told us. Right. And so that's been like a little little joke that pops up. But yeah, and shipping, I, I have been shipping Captain Adam. Adam and Catherine Colbert. That's been lovely. And to have some equal opportunity objectification on Sue's part towards Captain Adam has also been lovely. I thought it was going to be a task, like a labor. I'm going to do this, but it's going to be hard to read. But I actually like more, I would say more enjoyed it than I thought it would. So it has exceeded my expectations. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. Actually, I'm glad you bring up Wally West because you picked up on something uh, interesting. We've been talking about on the show. Thanks for listening, by the way, uh, about the... <laughs> the mischaracterization of Wally because uh, he's been right a horrible pig throughout mm-hmm. most of the series. Then, uh, and by the way, that was when it was written by Giffen and Demetrius. Demetrius leaves the book, and they got Bill Mester Loeb's to come in and be the scripter for a little while. Well, Bill Mester Loeb's was writing the Wally West Flash series, and he came in and course corrected the treat the way Wally was treated in this book. Hmm. He ha- he wrote that issue that you talked about where Wally and Ralph connect. And Wally becomes more of a human being than just a gross pig. Mm-hmm. And so they really did some course correction. Well, unfortunately, once Bill Mester Loeb's left the book, Wally seems to kind of slipped right back into the old behavior again, which is unfortunate. Now, I, I, I haven't read too far ahead, so I don't know if Wally will course correct again. But right now, he's not in a, in a very nice place that uh, yeah. the fans aren't, aren't happy with. He also lied to Karen because when she was in the hospital bed, he said, you know, if you make it out of this, I'll never say, you know, like a sexist or misogynist comment to you ever again. And then I think 
it was this previous issue, which I don't know how they get away with some of the innuendo lines that they've gotten away with. Okay. But there was something extreme that my jaw dropped that th- this conversation between the two of them in the hallway. And I thought, how have you gotten away with it? And also you lied to her. You said you wouldn't do this anymore. So Wally didn't lie. The writer changed <laughs> and the new writer didn't stick with it. Okay. So, I mean, yes, it, it, if you consider these real people, yes, but it wasn't so much Wally lying as the yeah. writer didn't keep going with what they had said earlier, which is a shame. Yeah. So, all right, I'm, I'm very excited to hear that you're enjoying this book because it's a fun book. I This was my Justice League for a long time. It took me a while to warm up to Justice League America, and this was my mm-hmm. team. Well, why don't we get into this issue? Folks, this is Justice League Europe number 14, published by DC Comics. Cover date is May 1990. It was on the shelves April 3rd, 1990. Cover price was $1 for shiny quarters. And the cover is by Bart Sears, who's the traditional artist. Now, he does not do the interiors on this issue, but he did the covers. Stella, you want to describe the cover for us? I absolutely would love to. And let me just say while I'm getting to the cover that our mutual friend, perhaps frenemy, uh, Professor Cheapskate, a.k.a. Alan, would not have bought this. Uh, not for a dollar, but you know what? You could probably find it in uh, less than a quarter bin nowadays. <laughs> yeah, well, taxes, he's paying more. So the cover is, and this is apropos mainly because when we're recording, the Godzilla versus King Kong movie is out. But the it, it looks like we're actually looking through film, actual mm-hmm. film. And you at the very top, which is the most eye-catching, you have this huge Godzilla <laughs> foot <laughs> coming down. And the action is, is obviously showing that it's coming down and then underneath scaled potentially I would say scaled well to the foot you've got certain members and they're all in costume which is a bit of it's a bit misleading since no one's really in costume in this but you have ice and power girl which I do want to talk about her art and fire and flash and then behind which is probably the funniest one is elongated man and he's of course stretched all over the place but also his eyes are literally bugged out, <laughs> left his skull, and then Wally is saying, "Uh oh!" So everyone's kind of <laughs> looking up, and though Power Girl seems unperturbed, she's just crossing her arms and like, you know, I can deal with this. But yeah, a really interesting. She's probably <laughs> interesting the only one that would survive it. Actually, <laughs> that might be true, even though her yeah her powers have been slightly dampened. Yeah, but yeah. I love this cover. It is hilarious. The film strip motif, the Godzilla foot, the tiny size of the heroes. I mean, like each toenail is like the size of three of them. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's great. It's a real hilarious thing. I don't know if you re- you remember this. This is probably before your time because you're still, I don't know, you're like, what, 15 years old. There 16, is, you were close. Oh, happy birthday. And Thank so uh, this has echoes of the Bambi versus Godzilla cartoon, for mm. those of you who remember that. It was like this cute little cartoon. It was only a couple seconds long. We showed Bambi eating in the woods. And then suddenly giant Godzilla foot squashed it. I mean, that was the whole cartoon and it was, everyone knew it. It was infamous. It was hilarious. And uh, it looks very much like that. And it's a hoot. It's a great, it's a really expertly drawn Godzilla foot too. I mean, it looks really good. I would agree. So you said uh, you wanted to, oh, by the way, why is Fire only wearing one glove? I mean, I know Michael Jackson's pretty popular in 1990, but what's up with that? No idea. Could be miscolored, I suppose. But Yeah, I also looked at hand placements because I wondered if Flash would put his hand inappropriately anywhere. But it does fit internally 
because he was flirting with fire the entire time. Yep. So I guess that that works out that those two are next to each other, kind of. Well, I like that Ralph has got two hands on Wally, like you know, yeah. like a, almost like hiding behind him or friendship. Yeah. So it's you know, it's it's nice that they're friends. So I like that. All right, let's get inside, folks. The plot and breakdowns is by Keith Giffen. Script is by Gerard Jones. Penciler is Linda Medley. Inker is Jose Marzan Jr. Letter is Albert de Guzman. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor Kevin Dooley. Editor Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called You Oughta Be in Pictures. And <laughs> oughta is misspelled. Not that oughta is probably correct, but either way, there's a G in there, which is very unusual. Or right, uh, a G and an H. Stella, why don't you start us off? Absolutely. Okay, so the issue opens with a scene from seven years ago, which my first reading I was a bit confused on, but here we are. In Brooklyn, there is an obsessive movie nerd, and he gains the ability to project his consciousness into the shape and form of any character he sees on TV or films. He's kind of sucked in, it seems like, like Jumanji. While he's in the form, while he's in the form of the screen character, he is actually separated from his real life body. Fast forward to the present, and this same nerd is upset because he's failed to launch a career as a celebrity impersonator. Frustrated, he gets the idea to impersonate the rich and famous Flint Eastwood. Hmm. <laughs> we then travel across the globe to the Cannes Film Festival, and there we catch up with Ralph and Sue Dibney, Wally West, and Karen Starr, which is Power Girl's secret identity, though she rarely uses it. The heroes of the Justice League Europe are actually invited guests of the annual film festival. I really don't know what the film festival was thinking about doing that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> of course, the European team is hoping for some good public relations because everything that they touch is basically disastrous. While Wally and Ralph inappropriately ogle women, they spy Justice League America members Fire and Ice, who are also attending the festival. And everyone's in their civvies, by the way. Mm -hmm. Elsewhere in town, our movie nerd is actually impersonating Flint Eastwood, wooing several beautiful ladies. The hotel staff, I mean, please. The hotel <laughs> staff realizes he's an imposter when the real Flint Eastwood is spotted elsewhere in town. The local police arrest him for impersonating a celebrity. Then uh, the movie nerd tries to get away by changing his form, but the only TV or movie character he can see from the back of the patrol car is a giant Godzilla. So sure enough, his new form comes out of this Jumbotron TV as a classic city-stomping Godzilla. So we're talking 10 stories high, goofy rubber suit, the whole thing. Uh, this alerts our heroes, and a chase ensues. They follow the 10-story monster into one theater after another. He transforms into a Texas Chainsaw Massacre knockoff. And he's finally able to escape by shape-changing into an adorable puppy he spotted in a G-rated movie. In the end, the con, cans, I don't know. I, I say cans film festival, but I'm stupid. So anyway, the, the cons film festival, we'll call it all of, all of them. Anyway, the award ceremony's canceled, and the leaguers are blamed for the incident. So Wally, Karen, Ralph, and Sue fly back to Paris, really with more questions than answers, knowing full well that Captain Adam's going to blame them for the destruction, uh, and yet never knowing that the shape changer is on the plane with them. Now, meanwhile, in Russia, the hero Blue Jay finally makes it to the Justice League embassy in Moscow, which is a tease for the upcoming storyline. Next issue, regular artist Bart Sears returns for the first part of a five-issue epic that promises to be the most talked-about story of the year. Be with us in 30 for a glimpse of The World Beyond. Da-da-da. Yes, people, it's the extremist storyline coming your way. All right, Stella. Well, why don't you tell me? What would you think of the issue? Okay. Well, <laughs> I think... <laughs> 
overall, it's it's not the best issue compared to all of the the issues that I had read leading up to this. But I will say that I feel like it it continues several themes. Mm -hmm. I think it continues the themes of displacement, strangers in a strange land, the inability to conform to customs and how it just becomes worse for the team after they try. And and, and they just continue with their rotten reputation. So, uh, you know, you've got the comical, but also it's just almost disheartening. Like this team can't catch a break, really. Yeah. (laughs) I do do wonder why Crimson Fox isn't there because she's been kind of that glimmering light for them that finally, because th- there was this one issue where this whole complaint that no one speaks French on the team with right. the exception of Ralph. And it just seems like, oh, these haughty Americans are trying to, you know, impose themselves on us again. And so then when they had Crimson Fox is like, well, now we have representation for us. And so I don't know why she wasn't out and about them, but maybe she doesn't like to use her civilian guys very often. The, the civilian guy it would be tricky for her. But yes, yeah, she could have absolutely gone in costume. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I guess she seems, if she's the same woman that was flirting with Bruce Wayne in that previous issue, then she probably would have been in the con film festival, like actually viewing things and, and all bedazzled rather than hanging out with these muckety mucks. That's what they want you to think right now. It's trickier oh. than that. I see. So see, this is what happens. I'm just popping on here. But yeah, so clearly a transitional issue focusing on members who are not dealing with some trauma like Rex or Buddy. So trying to lighten it up and then have this intermingling with the international gals of of fire and ice. The villain with quotation marks, I would say, isn't much of a villain. I feel like in a good way, he really fits the Justice League, your JLE. Is that okay if I call it that? Yeah. The JLE team struggles in this book, really, as someone who's a misfit, he's trying to fit in somehow, but just doesn't work out for him. So I do like that. But otherwise, I mean, he's just running off from conflict. Mainly, I think that there's only one time that he may have tried to attack with the chainsaw and and just hijinks are caused from him trying to escape. So it's like there's I don't know, there's a lot of crazy stuff that's that's going on here. Some great moments. I love when Ralph was being a pig and he yes <laughs> was ogling fire and ice and then he, he goes to say hello to them and they just whack him that was just out of instinct they just they just one punch him which I love that he was absolutely ogling them he even says <laughs> yeah. yep I know that full bouncy like dot 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 hair anywhere uh, like oh dude yeah. come on your wife is right there I know that he's really I mean I guess tit for tat because she clearly in previous issues I'm sorry it seems like I'm flexing like I read all these issues but in previous issues she is like very out uh, about ogling and objectifying and saying what a manly man Captain Adam is right so I guess because there's even that one full page where they first arrive and his head is stretched and he's looking up at a billboard of a a sexy lady he's pretty sleazy in this more so, I mean, there, there's been like a couple of jokes here and there, but it's more yeah. so in this one, that's for sure. But you kind of step back and go, you know what? Every marriage has its own quirks, and it seems like they make it work. Uh, you know, they they have their style, they love each other, they're committed to each other, they goof around and joke about other people being attractive, but they always come back to each other and don't stray. So I, I guess if it works for them, it works for them. Yeah, they're an awesome couple. I can't help but love them. 
Yes. Yeah, I agree. And I think once we talk about the role of the female characters in here, I'll ask a question because this this entire run, I'll ask it now and then I'll say, you know, we can we can put it on the burn. Let's do it now. But well, I just feel like this is the most sexist book I've ever read. Like possibly just with and I just wonder why. Is it just the team members? Is it the writers? Is it like let's we're playing it up for laughs and we're really we're saying our audience is men. So let's make it for that is the times. I mean, what is it that that has made this like this? Because I I was like, what is going on? And like I said in the previous issue, some things were said that I could not believe got past the censors. (laughs) It almost seems like Justice League Europe's worse than Justice League America. Uh, It seems like the sexist comments and stuff like that, for the most part, well, I shouldn't. I don't know. I'd have to really sit there and analyze it. But uh, the worst offenses in Justice League America are coming out of Guy Gardner's mouth, Mm -hmm. which are where you would expect them to be. Mm-hmm. And he's consistently put down for those behaviors. Whereas here, it's coming out of Wally's mouth, and he's not yeah. always put down for it. Uh, and, and, it's, and obviously, it's coming out of Ralph. So I, I did want to bring this up, because this issue specifically, uh, and you got to go with me here, it feels to me like in this issue, they're trying to change that and put a positive spin on the representation of women in, the, in this issue. But I don't know if they succeeded or not. I'll go through my reasons, and then we can talk with her. For the first thing is there are more female protagonists than male mm-hmm. in this issue. You've got Ice, Fire, Power Girl, and Sue. Uh, I count her as a protagonist versus just Flash and Elongated Man. Then there are lots of women at the cans, cons, con, whatever, <laughs> con uh, film festival who are objectified in bathing suits and sexy drawings. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. ton of them. And then once Ralph and Wally try to ogle them, they get called on it. They don't mm-hmm. get away with it. And none of the protagonist women are drawn in an objectified way. None of them are dressed scantily. None of them are drawn provocatively at all, at least as far as I could tell. Uh, the closest might be fire, but I, I wouldn't say it's provocative. She's just wearing, you know, she's showing her stomach, okay? But she's not walking around in a bathing suit. She's not doing ridiculous poses, all that kind of stuff. Then, the and I promise we'll, I'll, I'll stop talking in a minute and we'll jump into this, but the movie nerd, he became Flint Eastwood to seduce women, right? Terrible. And then he ends up facing the consequences of his deplorable actions, and it's specifically Fire and Power Girl, women, that are dishing out those consequences. Mm-hmm. In fact, the guys are completely ineffective in this. Only the women are effective. Then you have a female artist on the issue as well. So I felt like maybe they were trying to put a positive uh, representation here with women. But at the same time, there was so much objectifying of the girls of the Riviera. There was mm-hmm. the, the gross comments. I, like, I, I don't know if it worked. It sounds like to you it didn't. So tell me your thoughts. I have several. So first of all, they've dug such a deep hole of misogyny. That even if you're trying to like get out of it, they're still in the hole and they're like, yeah. maybe looking, peeping a bit. So it's like a transition, like we're, we're getting better, but we've got miles to go. And I don't know if they thought, oh, well, if we show our leading ladies as, you know, well-dressed and well-designed, then that's the best because they're representing everyone. And then anyone else is just like, yeah, we can do whatever we want, which I did research, you know, where is this? location in terms of the beach would they actually be walking on the sidewalk you know from the beach in their bathing suits and i suppose but yeah that that's certainly that got me it does pass the bechdel test so and you know there is that but i wonder do you boost women up by tearing the men down because basically they portrayed the men badly and the women call them out on that but that doesn't mean necessarily that the women are 
like really well represented. It's just that, well, they're standing up for themselves. And even Fire, she allows Flash to flirt, flirt with her. And I think, who is it? Ice, Ice says it's like a spider yes. uh, with a fly on the web. So She's- clearly, you know, clearly she can take care of herself. But, you know, just because the men are... are pigs doesn't mean that like by extension the women are elevated like everyone needs to be elevated and and you know on the same plane so i i do have a a bit of an issue with that i i don't get some of these like the ice comment the comment of her like why are you so fast all of a sudden and she's suddenly been jogging i couldn't tell if that was something i'm supposed to read in on like ralph did you not think that she's a capable metahuman that she should be fast that was a bit odd that line made no sense. It almost was like they were trying to make up for something in the art. Like, you know, like, why was she suddenly there when she was in the other side of the room? I don't know. It. I didn't get that at all. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so I'll bring this Karen thing up now. Like, looking at Karen, I like her design here. Now, overall, the art isn't, it's not my favorite. I'll say that. But Karen, throughout this entire run by Sears, she looks like a man with a wig on, basically, like drawn like that. Very harsh features. Absolutely. Yes. Very harsh features. I even put my fingers around like her head at one point. I was like, that's a man. Now, given <laughs> masculinity <laughs> and femininity are, are more or less, you know, cultural constructs that we have our own ideas of that. And so perhaps I'm just brainwashing the fact that I would expect her to be a little more feminine. But I just wonder, like, why would you design her that way? Could we not have? you know, a strong woman that is also attractive? Or do you have just these polar opposites of like really attractive and like more or less, I don't know, as someone would say like butch or something like, is there no middle ground? So it just very harsh, I would say from Sears. So seeing her here, not necessarily uber feminine compared to someone like maybe Fire, I felt like this was a nice middle ground for Karen personally, especially if you take this compared to the, the just the cover so you can see the, the dichotomy between the two of them. Yeah, as far as her look goes, and we talked about this a little bit on the show there there's definitely a very specific look he's going for with her that you don't see in like Catherine or Sue and a lot of us have speculated that he's actually trying to draw a real life person okay. uh, perhaps Denise Crosby she looks a lot like Denise Crosby from Star Trek Next Generation uh, she looks a lot like uh, Marky Post sometimes actually uh, so we're, we're not really sure but there's you're, there's definitely a, a uniqueness to her versus the other female characters in the, in the thing and I, I guess I, I don't know what he was going for I mean obviously mm-hmm. the way he draws her clothes the way he draws everybody's clothes is ridiculous I and mean, we've talked about that a whole bunch too Every Everybody is ripped like insanely, whether you're a guy or girl. Now, you know, it it is worth noting he goes just as much beefcake as he does cheesecake. So he's equal opportunity, uh, sexy drawer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I I like Karen in this issue, too, with the jumpsuit she's wearing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very practical. It's functional. uh, It's not provocative at all. And I think it looks great. And I would say she also, um, Linda Medley also gave her a little bit of a... sharper features as well compared again to like Sue or Fire or Ice I think Karen's drawn a little bit differently like she she looks a little more and I don't know if angular is the right word but a little more sharp features mm-hmm. yeah and it's clear like her body type I think is much different than the other women too so I think it matches that I don't know if necessarily she'd be bodybuilder type but clearly someone who's well-defined and really in shape, I think, compared to the other women. So her face would potentially follow that. But yeah, yeah. so I think I think they're trying, you know, to get back to your original question. But it's uh, 
they still have some some time to go. And and I think the big part part is that they do call them out on and and they hold the men accountable for this and they show that they're capable all on their own. So I think those are the the positive aspects to get from that. But yeah, I'm just looking at this cafe scene and you know, just to the left you have this woman in a one-piece bathing suit. So it's weird sort of the juxtaposition between this. I've I've never been to the Riviera. Now this issue certainly makes me want to go. Uh I bet it does. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I, I've seen, certainly seen pictures of like South Beach and things like that. And that, yeah, that's what South Beach looks like. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I would assume there's some basis in reality in this. I'm not sure. But uh, so I guess my feelings on our, I feel like they were trying to do something here to, mm-hmm. to show women in a position of power to be capable. And I just don't know if they were effective in what they were trying to do. And I don't know if it gets better. I know there's certain aspects that get much, much worse as time goes on. Actually, the, the the treatment of Power Girl does not improve uh, mm. over time. They they make some really bad calls about that over the time. You mentioned Dr. Jennifer Swartz Levine earlier. Mm-hmm. She delivered a paper about how badly Power Girls represented in this comic. Was that with the diet soda? Uh, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I was thinking. I wonder what it was like for people reading this that have been so used to the sexist comments that they probably were like dissatisfied with this. Like, what is this? What is this I'm reading? What is this pro female? And then they get, oh. oh, okay, this is what I was. I just wonder if it felt uncomfortable for people. Whereas for me, probably for you too, I think you've grown as as a man, hopefully. That, <laughs> as a person, the, I think I would like yeah, to think. <laughs> <laughs> that the rest of the series feels uncomfortable. And this is like, oh, okay, we're getting back to maybe where it should be. But I just wonder people at the time, how they received this particular issue. Well, it was, it was the late eighties, early nineties. I was, you know, would have been, I guess, 18 years old when this was on the shelves. I doubt that I was aware enough that that kind of behavior was inappropriate. You know, I'm, this is not an excuse for this treatment of women here, but back then it was common. It was like, okay, that was just the way things worked. Mm -hmm. Um, And and again, in this setting, they thought they were doing the right thing by making the women the heroes, by making the the skeevy guys all lose out and and things go wrong for all the skeevy guys. You know, Ralph, uh, uh, Wally, and the the movie nerd, all of them had things go horribly wrong for them and the women all came out looking better. They Mm -hmm. thought they were doing the right thing, but uh, yeah, it doesn't really fly. So, Okay, I think I just have one other point and a question. So the question is on Karen. Uh-huh. Is Karen flying? Oh, uh, give me a page number. Ooh, I am on page uh, 18. That's a good point. She should not be able to. No, and it seems like she is. There's one part, 18, she's on a downward motion. There yep. is one earlier page that, okay, it could be a leap. Yeah, she should be leaping because she her power should be equivalent of, yeah, you're right, on 14. It sure looks like she's flying. Yeah. Uh, her power should be equivalent to about the Golden Age Superman. Uh, but this is, this may be... The first issue, we've actually seen her do anything super heroic since her injuries. I'm Mm -hmm. trying to remember. Everything else has been so goofball, you know, just crazy, funny, silly. So I don't know that, yeah, it could be a mistake by the artist here, or maybe you you could say she's leaping. It just looks a lot more like flying with the way her arms are and her legs and everything. Yeah, coming down. Which, I I lied. I have another question, a follow-up question, because this was something that I was wondering when I watched her be depowered and go through all that. Mm -hmm. Is that problematic for a female character? Like, what was she, she probably wouldn't have been the strongest. I'd say probably Captain Adam would be the strongest, but certainly she's 
probably slightly below him, uh, power power level on the team. Did that strike people as maybe uncomfortable? Like, I don't want a woman to be that powerful. Let's let's pull our power levels down. Do you see anything? Does that strike you as uncomfortable at all for you as a reader? It it didn't read well in that regard. Like, if you stop and think about the female representation on the team, making her weaker than the men really looks bad. If you step back and look at it from the real world writing perspective and understand the reasons they did it, it's like, oh, that's why. The real reasons they did it was because in post-crisis, they wanted Superman to be the top tier character in the in the universe. Mm-hmm. No one was supposed to have a power level that rivals him for the most part. And she was pretty much the same power level as him. So in order to function properly, they had to bring her power level down to make her not quite so Superman-like. So instead, mm-hmm. they just, they opted to make her like the Golden Age Superman, basically that kind of power level, which makes perfect sense from a comic book. It's also kind of a nice representation to be sort of represent the Earth 2 version of Superman, if you will. It's just, yeah, the optics of it from a, a female representation perspective look bad, certainly. I understand the reasons, but and they probably just didn't even think about that side of it, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's just hard. You know, I feel bad for her this entire run. Yeah, you have Sue there. But on the team that's actually going out on missions, I mean, Karen's the only female there. And randomly, Wonder Woman was supposed to be on the team. I don't know. Issue one, she like popped up and was late. And that was it. So it's just Karen, you know, how hard it is. And and I certainly have been there, you know, being a a lone female and like a population. Oh, my gosh. Basically, every time I go to those comic conventions you invite me to, (laughs) me and, and your pod of friends. So, you know, I totally get it. Like, that's really hard. But just to be like, she was up there and now she's kind of put in her place, as it were, was was hard to read. We just invite you because it's like a gang of nerdy guys. And we feel yeah. better if there's a girl there with us. So we don't feel like <laughs> quite token losers. female. Yeah. Yes, I yep. played that part before. <laughs> <laughs> or we invite you because you're one of our best buddies. Don't even start oh. with that nonsense. Oh, OK. And then my final point is actually the ending. Well, I Oh, yes, yes. But before you do that, I do want to say yeah, when they when they started the team, it was supposed to be Power Girl and Wonder Woman. <laughs> okay. And then again, real world plays a role where the, the Wonder Woman office said, no, 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 you're not taking Wonder Woman for your silly sitcom TV, uh, oh, comic book. So they lost yeah. Wonder Woman. So suddenly they're like, oh, now we're down to one female character. You're right. So they really played up Catherine. They really played up Sue. Mm-hmm. And then uh, then they added Crimson Fox. But yeah, it's uh, it, it was not supposed to end up this way. Yeah. Which I think overall, like, I really like Catherine. I, I think actually she's a really great character. And Sue, like I said, she's multidimensional. And poor poor Karen, though, I feel like her part is just like slapping down the sexist comments. So I hope that, you know, if I were to continue this, I hope that there's a bit more. But apparently, according to the good doctor, there's not. But I just wonder, you know, thinking about what Wonder Woman would have been like on this team, because she probably would have, I think, laid hands on Wally West after the first comment. So maybe it would have been good to have her and then put him in his place and then maybe it would have been a better team. But I mean, oh if, well. you, if you think about the series, the way it was originally designed, you had basically, you know, the the Superman and Wonder Woman dynamic of Power Girl and Wonder Woman. I mean, you had the two of the most powerful people on Earth were going to be the leader, you know, the, yeah. some of the lead characters in this book, which would have been fantastic. Mm-hmm. So we lost that opportunity, unfortunately, in both both regards. Alas. But we did get a flurkin. We did. Okay. What is that exactly? Is that ever explained, that cat? Uh, it's not necessarily explained. Well, it's just a cat. I mean, that's that's all it is. 
but it becomes Power Girl's cat. And it oh, becomes. Well, I did, yeah. So that was nice. Yeah. Oh, but it, it's it's like a major supporting character throughout <gasps> the rest of the series. Oh yeah, it's a it's a big deal. In it fact, gives me incentive to keep reading. In fact, the letters page in this issue has like a name the cat contest, Aww. and then when Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor did a, a Power Girl series, they had her have a cat. It wasn't supposed to be the same cat, but they had her have a cat, which was a direct nod to this stuff. Oh man, I I have to say, I guess it was the last issue, issue thirteen. That was a. That might be my favorite, just with like the insanity of those kids. I know this isn't the issue 13 <laughs> review, but those kids visiting, right. Captain Adams basically like saying something's going to happen and things do happen because of this cat. The cat has a thought balloon at one point because the thief had stepped on the cat's yep. tail and yep. he got, oh man, that was, it was an amazing, you know, if that were it, except for that really dirty line that Wally said, if that were the the comic, I'd be like, yeah, this is, this is amazing. So anyway, so sorry to get back to that. That's fine. Um, I have one last point. It's basically about the end. I thought it was just uh, like a blah, blah, blah ending. So we're on the plane. Wally's really upset basically because they're going to get dressed down and there's there's they have no idea why what happened happened. And I just could not believe that Ralph is letting it go. He's like, there's a mystery. I have no idea. But meh. I thought that is awful because if I know Ralph Dibney, if there's a mystery, he's going to solve it. So I thought this was a terrible ending. And then there's that guy that's next to them. And I have no idea how he was able to get back to his normal identity. But it was just uh, it was a poor ending, I felt like, for this particular story. When I first read it, I was very frustrated by the ending. I'm like, all they did was just chase this guy around. They don't <laughs> even know yeah. who he was, what was it about. They, I mean, they're literally like... First, we were chasing Godzilla. Now we're chasing, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, we don't even know if this is related, but we're doing it anyway. Yeah. And then it gets away, and they're like, oh, well, and they just leave. So I was really bothered by it. And I don't know whether I've just had to spend so much time with the issue now, writing the recap and really breaking it down that's gotten me to a point where I'm accepting of it now. Okay. Uh, I'm a lot more accepting of it than I initially was. Certainly, I I was really disappointed. In fact, I think I texted you and said, uh, fair warning, it's not a great issue. Um, So, yeah. yeah. It's it's not the best. Yeah, that's 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 the quickest way to say it. And that actually leads me to another point that we should probably talk about, which is the art. You said mm-hmm. earlier the art's not your favorite. Mm-hmm. So Linda Medley is the artist in this issue, and she truly is a wonderful cartoonist. She's got a great cartoonist style, and I'm using the word cartoonist on purpose uh, in a positive sense. However, this was her first published comic book. Full, first full comic. Now, she'd done a few pinups, a couple of those, but this is the first time that, at least as far as I can tell, that she drew an entire issue. A couple episodes, we did cover the Justice League Europe annual, which was drawn by Linda Medley. We were kind of bending the timeline a little bit there. That issue, the, the annual actually comes out after the issue we covered he, today here, so this actually is the first one. Um, the art is fine. It, it works, and it's fun, but it's not spectacular. It reminds me a little bit of Chaz Truog's work on Animal Man. Hmm. Uh, but it was a bit disappointing. But I do want, before we start breaking it down, I do want to say she does get much, much better very quickly. You know, I mentioned the annual. I actually enjoyed the art in the annual quite a bit. It's actually an improvement over this. And she continues to get better. And and also, I do question Jose Marzan Jr., if he's the right, uh, the inker on this, if he's the right fit for her. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen some of her pieces that look spectacular, uh, when she's either inked herself or she was inked by folks like John Beatty or Art Adams. Uh, again, she's a great 
great cartoonist, and this was her first full issue. Everybody has to start somewhere. So, and she goes on to be a, a very successful career as an illustrator. What, what, where are you landing on all this right now? I first at least want to say that I'm so happy that there's a female, <laughs> a female name attached. Period, and then right. you know a female artist, and to hear that this is her first one, I think grace is in order. You know, give grace to the artist, mm-hmm. and I'm so glad to hear that she has a continuing career with that. So I just want to say that, yeah, but it's just not my my cup of tea. I think it's not bad. I think part of it is also you get so used to a pick t- a particular artist. And I had been, re- you know, basically following Sears and then you have a change and it's that's hard. So that's one of the things. You got a good point there. I mean, Bart Sears, a hyper muscled comic book superstar at mm-hmm. this point, and then have Linda Medley, who's just starting a career to follow. I mean, it's it's pretty jarring for the reader. Yeah. Yeah. But but I think there are positive aspects. I, I think that her women are better proportioned mm-hmm. and the men, I guess. Yeah. are. It's more, I would say, realistic. I, I would say that the characters, the people actually seem like people and realistic people that you could run into, of course, with muscles and things like that. But, uh, I agree. but just overall, yeah, not the not my favorite art. But yeah, I'd like to see it. I mean, I feel like I might continue reading JLE. So I'd like to see that the annual you're talking about and just see as she starts to evolve as an artist. When she comes back uh, off and on throughout the series, so you, okay. she she's not she doesn't become the well she may become the regular artist at some point. Again, it's been a long time since I've read these, uh, so I don't remember off the top of my head. But she she definitely draws a lot more as she's down the line. So and and you should Google her stuff nowadays. Oh my gosh, she's yeah. amazing. Now, it also the cartoonish sort of style uh, it became very popular in the 1990s. I mean, look at Mike Parabek and Ty Templeton, and then later on Darwin Cook. That sort mm-hmm. of cartoonish style becomes very very popular, and I feel like Linda was kind of on the forefront front of that you know it just it, it was a little too early i think again she's a little early in her career i think it's not the right anchor so i just you know un- unfortunately from what i understand the jli community of fans were not very receptive of her work at the time which is very disappointing to me again i kind of understand where they're coming from you've got adam hughes on one book you've got bart sears regularly here and then they come into linda medley and it's it, again it's a big change and it's uh, probably hard to accept I do want to give her some props, though. Uh, there's some really fun bits. She And I noticed this in the annual. She does really great little things. She just tucks in there. Like, if you look on page five, uh, there's a big splash page of the Justice League members walking around uh, the Cons, Cans, Cons Film Festival. And Sue has a Band-Aid on her knee. Aww. It's absolutely unnecessary. But it just it makes it feel more real. It just it's it's that's kind of a real life thing. It's silly, but also in the background there's like a, a Batman logo with a two underneath it. Ooh. Because this is one year after the massively popular, you know, nineteen eighty nine Batman movie and Batmania and all that kind of stuff. Then uh go to page six. I, I think Linda Mentally invented something. <gasps> so you look on page six, bottom right hand corner, fire and ice are walking by, and of course they're beautiful women. Mm-hmm. And the boyfriend I, <gasps> I think Linda Medley invented the distracted boyfriend meme oh, right here. My. Gosh! The yeah, boy- give her retroactive credit. Right. So you, everyone, if you whether you know what I'm talking about or not, <laughs> you've seen the distracted boyfriend meme. Yeah. You have the girl yeah. in the red dress walks by. The boyfriend's looking, going woo, and the girlfriend's like, "Are you yeah. kidding me?" And that is what's happening here. The boyfriend is looking at fire and ice, and the girlfriend's like, "Are you kidding me?" So yeah, I I think she deserves props. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Here's an important question for you. Would you see a film called Bulimic Vampire Ninjas 3, The Final Purge? Well, I've seen one and two, so I don't know why. <laughs> I see. So why not finish up the trilogy? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the fourth one's the best one. But anyway, uh, there's also some funny bits in there that are uh, like uh, they do throw one punch. 
around a few times, which Ooh. you probably don't know, but is a famous callback to Justice League Guy America. Gardner, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well done. I'm How dare you? Just because I'm a girl, you didn't think I knew that reference? No, you didn't read the Justice League comics. But everyone knows. Well, I look, I Google on my spare time, basically, um, violent actions against Guy Gardner. <laughs> And so, of course, I, <laughs> of course, I, I've gotten flagged at work a couple times. But of course, I I know of Batman One Punch Guy Gardner. Okay, I'm glad you're you're at least you have some baseline knowledge of uh, your JLI history. <laughs> then I I like when the police come to arrest the movie nerd when he's uh, supposed to be like the Clint Eastwood guy, and they tell him that uh, there are terrorists t- have taken the president hostage, and only the world's toughest cop can save him. I thought that was hilarious. I genuinely laughed at that moment. That, that was pretty funny. How do you so. think? they knew that he was the fake and not the one that was at the con film festival oh that's a good question because they look identical hmm i don't know yeah there was a by the way i meant to mention earlier there's a, there's an interesting thing they don't make a big deal about it but when the movie nerd copies and by the way i don't, I don't think the guy has a name so i just call, keep going movie nerd anyway <laughs> I, I could call him rob kelly i guess anyway oh. uh every time he copies a tv or movie character mm-hmm. that character actually disappears from the tv show or movie like when he turns into the little dog the little dog's missing from the scenes the characters mm-hmm. are continuing to act as if that character is there and like one of the little girls in the audience is like mommy mommy where'd the doggy go because he's gone from the movie yeah. so that's kind of a, a neat t- i don't i don't know if that was in the plot or uh linda just decided that herself but uh, i think i think it looks great i love mm-hmm. it it's a cute little bit his origin is really interesting like i i have questions about it i guess maybe he's not important enough to have that but was it electricity that caused all of this i mean is there a radioactivity going on what how did this happen I have some questions. He sticks a tape in the VCR. That's all it is. Well, yeah. I know, but is that really it? Could it could that happen to me if I go and do that right now? Well, you're so young, you probably don't remember VCRs. But this was I actually this was a common side effect was gaining superpowers from using VCRs. It used to happen to all of us in the eighties. Interesting. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he's. It is very much a sitcom issue, which is a little weird because we had the sitcom issue last issue as well with the cat. Yeah. And since Just League Europe's supposed to be more serious, that's a little weird. But it, it's also probably a holding action where they build up for the big five issue extremist storyline, which is very serious. Which is with the Blue Jay yep, and exactly uh, right. the other woman that left. I can't Silver Sorceress. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that Blue Jay was tiny. I just imagined it was like this giant man with blue wings. So when they showed the perspective of what he looked like. That was interesting. Yep. Yeah. All right. I think that is going to complete our coverage of the issue itself. Now it is time to get into the One Punch Award. This is where we nominate our favorite moment from the issue, whether it be fantastic or shocking or dramatic or funny or awe-inspiring or whatever. Uh, and, and this is a departure. We we did the Bwahaha Award on the JLA issue, but we're going to be doing the One Punch Award here on the Justice League Europe going forward. Both myself and Stella will pick a single moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. Now, Stella, you're the guest, which is unfortunate for all the people listening at home, I suppose. Indeed. Uh, what is your pick for the One Punch Award? I want to first say that I'm disappointed it's not the blah, blah 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 award because i was going to basically say that anytime you open your mouth that was the blah 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 so we've changed it to one punch so it's definitely i i definitely have a pick but when i was rereading this issue there was something at the end can i give an honorary mention Sure, sure okay so at the end when they are in the airport and (laughs) 
Our team, the Europe team, knows that they're going to get in trouble. Basically, I think they already have over the phone. Mm -hmm. And then they question Fire and Ice and are like, are you not going to get into trouble? And Fire says, of course not. And then that last panel, Ice says, why did you lie to them? And Fire says, listen, when I was a kid getting spanked was nothing. My friends knowing I got spanked, that was pain. So I would say that's <laughs> that's that's honorary mention for that one. But I will I, honestly, even though it is a literal one punch, the fact that Ralph was being a pig and ogling and then creeping on fire and ice, and then they in an instant smack him at the same time and his head goes all the way back even farther beyond his body is the panel of this issue. Okay. All right. It's a fun panel. It absolutely <laughs> it is. is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mine is different, but I do like yours quite a bit. Mine is page 12. It's the full page splash of the giant rubbery Godzilla monster <laughs> coming out of the Jumbotron and, and getting ready to fall under the city. It's just so ludicrous because it's not just a giant monster. It's a giant rubber costume monster. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can almost see the zipper practically. You can definitely see the headpiece seam, you know, where the headpiece is supposed to come off, which I just thought that was like, it was a cool visual that she does a great job drawing the monster. The monster looks really cool and I thought it was shocking and fun and, and crazy and zany. So that was my big wow moment of the issue for me. Now we have to pick who's going to walk away with the award. I hate to throw in the towel this quickly because I don't usually do that. But since this is our first one-punch award for Justice League Europe, and literally that scene with Ralph is a one-punch, I, I think I have to give it to it. I think I have to bow to your superior intellect, intellect and say you had the correct uh, pick. So I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, they say that women are the more evolved creatures because our wee-wees fell off as we evolved. So that's why... Um, yeah, so I'm glad that you're bowing to my superiority. Now we have the explicit tag. Thanks, Stella. All right. Welcome. (laughs) So congratulations to Fire and Ice and Ralph. Uh, You all are off the winners of the One Punch Award. Wear it with pride. It is as tangible as our love for that moment. Oh. Now, folks, just I I know all of you are scratching your heads wondering why you didn't hear the One Punch sound effect over and over and over and over in that segment. I'm only going to play it at the beginning during those segments. Else, outside of this segment, it'll, you know, normal operating procedure. But uh, during the award segment, you just get it one time. Do you normally? Have you in the past repeatedly played it? Thanks for listening to the show. Stella, I I need to ask a favor. Uh, Would you... Would you mind hanging around here in France oh, at the film festival, cons, cans, cons, uh, and help console all these little kids that were traumatized? They were watching that cute puppy movie, and suddenly the puppy disappeared with no explanation, and I think they're all crying in the theater. Would you mind doing that? Yeah, I, I'm not the best at comforting, so I'll say they're there, and then I'll run to the beach to work on my tan. <laughs> Perfect. Now, don't worry, Stella. We will bring you back at the end of the show, and while Stella's taking care of that for us, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Log. But 
first, a little bit of news. In case you haven't heard, uh, HBO Max has a Green Lantern TV series in production, and they have cast Guy Gardner, a man by the name of Finn Whitrock, uh, who's famously known for his work on American Horror Story, has been cast as Guy Gardner. It's kind of taken the interwebs by storm. Lots of positive, a lot of negative, because, you know, how it works. Comic nerds are angry. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, there's a lot of different opinions on this. And for me personally, you know, if you look at his photo, it's kind of like, huh, Guy Gardner? But then I watched some clips from American Horror Story uh, upon the recommendation of my wife. She thinks the guy is amazing in the show. Uh, anyway, I watched the clips and he's pretty damn good. So I, you know what? Uh, again, the look, eh, they could probably do a lot with hair and makeup and all that stuff, whatever. But uh, as far as the intensity goes, eh, he might be able to pull it off. Also, uh, one more bit of news. As mentioned last episode, there is a new miniseries on the way from DC Comics coming in July called Blue in Gold. It's an eight-issue miniseries written by Dan Jurgens with art by Ryan Sook. And yes, it is an effort to bring the Bwahaha back to Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. Oh my gosh. It looks great. Check out the solicitations online. Check out the cover. It looks funny, guys. So definitely uh, hit up your local comic shop and please support it. Now, as always, remember, go out on the social media. Use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcast. Tag us at JLI Podcast. As I always say, this is about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And remember, when you're posting your comments, if you're outside of the United States, let me know, and we will assign you the appropriate embassy. So we're going to be touching on comments from our website, email, social media, just pulling bits and pieces because there is literally 27 pages of feedback. I, I put it all into one big Google document. I'm not exaggerating. I'm looking at it right now. 27 pages. Wow. So we're going to be covering uh, the most recent episodes where we talked about Guy Gardner with Kichi Baker, Booster Gold with Trent Lewis, Power of the Atom with Diablo Frank, and Justice League Detroit with Jerry Conway himself. First up is Gus Casals from our Argentina embassy. He has podcasts such as Alfred Pennyworth Presents and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. He says, once again, great episode, specifically the Guy Gardner segment. So many good insights here. And then Gus drops a knowledge bomb on us. Keep in mind, Gus is a past guest of this show, and he's a licensed psychotherapist. So here's what he writes. One licensed psychotherapist note on Guy Gardner's diagnostic. According to the French School of Psychoanalysts, absolute certainty is one of the most, if not the most telling indicator of the psychosis structure, which includes schizophrenia. Actually, the capability of doubt is what separates us garden variety neurotics from psychotics. So, just saying. Wow, thank you for that professional insight, Gus. We sincerely appreciate it. Then we heard from Bradley Knoll. He says, I hate this run of Green Lantern Corps so much. Goes on to say, Hal and his not technically underage girlfriend, but sure acts like it. Uh, this is not a good time to be a Green Lantern fan. I was doing peer counseling in high school for girls who had 20-year-old boyfriends from a local Air Force base. So the Hal Arisia thing was enough to stop me buying. He says, I love the rest of these comics and the actual podcast was a blast. Well, Bradley, I can completely understand where you're coming from. Then we heard from Diablo Frank from the World Spine Podcast Network, including a Martian Manhunter podcast, a Justice League Detroit blog, and so much more. Frank writes, I was introduced to Guy Gardner around Millennium when he was still in his nice mode and found him to be a boob. I missed and skipped a chunk of these issues in the teens, but came back during Invasion, partly because of a rare laugh-out-loud conversation around Guy being a dick to Mr. Miracle. I started on Guy Gardner shortly into the Warrior series, stuck with it its nearly 50-issue run, and backfilled the ones I had missed. For a few brief months, he was something near to my then-current favorite character. That said, Guy was a really dangerous and problematic dude during the Crisis-slash-Countdown story, which happens to be Frank's favorite Green Lantern core story arc. 
Uh, Frank goes on to say, I've been enamored with Green Lantern since reading the old Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams issues, and he's got arguably the best superpowers action figure. Plus, the lore of the core is so fascinating. But the star of most of those comics is the thoroughly worthless Hal Borden. <laughs> the countdown story in Green Lantern Corps featured a classic-era optimistic fantasy with an enormous scope and pitted the best and the worst Green Lanterns against one another. Plus, Hal was powerless and whipped into obsolescence. What's not to love? Thanks, Frank. Appreciate that. Then we heard from David Ace Gutierrez, who's the president of the Paul McGann Fan Club of Los Angeles. David writes, While the Green Lantern Corps and Booster never floated my boat, I really hoped Power of the Atom would be a great series. Alas, it petered out by invasion, and I have no idea why. By the time it ended, it has a dreadful pall around it, like nobody knew how to end it in a good fashion. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that, David. They were from Lizanne Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz writes, Adam, I like Roger Stern. I really do, but oi. First, Adam is kind of a jerk himself. Then he talks the other person out of joining, which is not really his business. He worked with Ollie and Hal in the JLA. Guy should be an upgrade. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. Appreciate that. Then we heard from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, and the Batgirl to Huntress podcast. Tim writes, I remember all of these points about Guy Garner, but I took them as him having a form of claustrophobia, which instead of shutting down, he lashes out. Not a reaction to his problem that endears sympathy. Just my two cents. Then Tim goes on to talk about Booster Gold and how he got caught up with the Manhunters. And Tim writes, I'm actually pretty glad that this part of the story didn't become a big deal in the JLI. It really would have soured his relationship with Ted, Scott, and the others. Hmm. It's interesting that Beetle held a huge grudge against Captain Adam when his story came out, but Booster's lapse is barely a blip? Hmm. Then Tim shares a little bit of trivia. He says he met Graham Nolan at a convention in 2019 and talked with him about the Power of the Atom series. Graham shared that Power of the Atom number 9's cover was his first job drawing Batman. Considering his long stint on the Batman titles, that's noteworthy in and of itself. And then Tim was kind enough to wish the JLI podcast a happy fifth anniversary. Woof. Yes, folks, it's been five years this podcast has been going. And Tim says it was the first podcast he ever listened to and introduced me to a whole new community that I love. Aw, Tim, that's so nice. Uh, yes, this community of fans uh, throughout the, all the podcasts of fear that we're connected with are absolutely amazing. Then we heard from Mike Dynas from the Pacific Canadian Embassy. Mike writes, this was fun. I'm really enjoying these Meanwhile episodes. Though I was strictly a JLI fan and didn't follow the characters in their own books, I really enjoyed the backstory of what was happening at the time. In fact, I gave me a better understanding of Guy Gardner. I didn't realize he had so many layers to his personality. Guy being a jerk, and then a peacenik, and then a jerk again was funny and an ongoing joke in the JLI. But hearing what happened to him makes me laugh less. This man needed help, people. Why aren't his teammates more concerned? <laughs> You're absolutely right, Mike. You know, in hindsight, as you look at this, I mean, it's seriously concerning that every time Guy got bonk on the head, nobody did anything but laugh? But suspension of disbelief, just a comic book. Go with the laugh, I guess. I just keep telling myself. Then we're from Brian Linton. He says, a funny story. Millennium Number no. 7 was the only issue of that crossover event that I had ever read, and it was my first encounter with Booster Gold. Not the best of first impressions, which hopefully explains why I didn't initially like the tremendous scumbag. He says, sorry, I'm still working through, <laughs> through some Millennium-induced trauma. Uh, he goes on to say, fortunately, I've had more positive encounters with Booster over the years, including this podcast, which has allowed me to appreciate the awesomeness that is his boahaha-ness. Well, that's good to hear, Brian. They heard from Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as JLU Cast, Superman 3 Movie Minute, and a whole bunch more. Chris writes, fun show. I actually had Green Lantern number 116, where Hal's battery malfunctions and sends Guy down his insane convoluted journey towards jerkery. I've got it in one of those Whitman comic three packs, the first issue of Green Lantern I ever owned. I bought the title off and on over the years and picked up a few issues during Crisis, but I had no idea of all the twists and turns and retcons involved in giving us the guy we all know and loathe. 
I do recall Guy being completely villainous in the Green Lantern Green Lantern Corps title, though. I prefer the JLI version. Thank you. So do we, Chris. Thanks for writing in, buddy. Then we're from Robert Maloney. He says, I remember going through these Green Lantern Corps issues when I had to write a final essay for a course on comics and American culture. Guy was my pick, since I was reading JLI. But I focused more on the evolution of him from Hal seldom seen backup to jingoist 80s anti-hero to solo 90s warrior, which meant skimming through a lot of material. I do appreciate the new perspective on his motives and feats. I can now look back on that New Year's issue without shaking my head. Uh, Robert, I don't know. That New Year's issue, even knowing what we know about Guy, his actions in that New Year's Eve issue is still pretty horrible. Uh, there were from Ever Tom Vieira do Carmo from our Brazilian embassy. He writes in to say, seeing the amount of trauma in the life of Booster Gold makes me frustrated that Tom King had to create a new trauma in Heroes in Crisis for him to deal with. Uh, you make a good point, Ever Tom. Now, I personally have not read Heroes in Crisis. I've sort of been bracing myself for it. I know I'm going to read it at some point, but uh, yeah, knowing what I know already, it, it, it does seem unfortunate that Booster had even more piled on top of him. They were heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy, and uh, Symbol Pending has their own Power Girl blog. They write, To be a negative Nelly on the comics of the time, it's a shame none of the female Justice League heroes had their own solo series at the time, at least that I'm aware of. Power Girl, which I always bring things back to, of course, won't get a short solo title for another three years, and has been in so many team books. Well, Symbol Penning, uh, both Black Canary and Huntress had their own series. Both were short-lived, and I don't think the Black Canary one overlapped with their time with the JLI. No, it did. It definitely didn't. Uh, but Huntress series did overlap with their time with the JLI. She was a pretty minor member, though, of the JLI. It wasn't really a big deal. But yeah, I, I get your point. You're absolutely right. I wish more of the female characters did have their own series. Really, not many of the Justice League America characters did have their own series once the Europe book launched. It's the Europe team that had a lot of, uh, of their own standalone series. All right, now we're from Martin Gray from the Scottish Embassy, and he has his Too Dangerous for Girl blog. Martin writes, I loved Power of the Atom. It was so great to get away from the stupid Sword of the Atom business. What the heck is the point of having a size-changing hero if you're going to exile him where everyone else is the same size? And to go a bit DCOCD, look at the legacy. It set Jean Loring on a character path that led to her murdering Sue Dibney, which, of course, never happened. At least in Power of the Atom, Roger Stern treated Jean decently, showed she wasn't a shrew. Then he goes on to say, Stern expanded Ray's powers, gave him a great supporting cast, and we had villains old and new. I love the series. Well, Martin, I'm really glad to hear that, because I do want to hear from people that you know, have different opinions from mine. So I'm glad that you love the Power of the Atom series. I, issue number nine just didn't work for me. They all heard from Captain Entropy about Guy Gardner. They write, I've had the opportunity to know people who survived head trauma and have received some education on the subject. Guy didn't need the Phantom Zone villains or anyone else to take on a different personality. The initial injury could have been enough. Do a search on Phineas Gage for more information. Even Guy's healing over time or with the help of the Guardians is consistent with reality, especially if he got the right therapy. The repeated head trauma events would only make things worse, though. Guy was always played for laughs or as the hero you love to hate, and I laughed or grimaced exactly as intended. But as Shag points out, the changes to Guy's personality were beyond his control. So looking back, Guy deserved my sympathy as much as Booster and Ray Palmer did, and woeful ignorance is my only defense. Yeah, Captain Entry, we're, we're all there with you, man. Again, none of us were thinking about this back then, and we're all we're, we're just going along for the ride with the sitcom feel. Then we heard from Jossum One. Oh, I love that handle, Jossum. Uh, they write in to say, I'm always amazed at your guests who can all remember their introductions to the characters. Perhaps I'm just too far removed from those days. I'm a little bit older than your average guest. Or just as likely, I've enjoyed too many recreational activities earlier in my life. Either way, I can't remember exactly when I bought or encountered most of the characters. That said, the jog down memory lane with you guys has been joyous. It's difficult for me to pull out these issues from my long boxes. I've got almost 16,000 books in my collection, so I'm glad most 
most of them are on the DCU app. You know, Jossum, you and me both. The DC app is a lifesaver for uh, not having to move those 49 lawn boxes in my garage. They were from DC Dave. So Shag, I heard you wonder about Crisis finally starting to show up in the Green Lantern core and the rest of the books. Well, it was already halfway over. That was by design. Crisis was written in the future of the DCU, about six months ahead of the entire line. The idea was to lay down the groundwork for Crisis and catch up so the mainline writers would have the idea where the story was going and could sync up their character beats, costume changes. For example, Black Canary's Jazzercise outfit, which first appeared in Crisis before appearing in Detective a few weeks later. So that was definitely by design. Thank you, DC Dave. I appreciate it. That's fascinating. They were from Damian Droud Whiter from our England embassy and one of the hosts of Should I Love This Comic Podcast. Damian writes, I do think Shag and Frank are being a little harsh on Power of the Atom. It was a little dull, but it had some good points. In particular, issue number five was the first comic I read with Ralph and Sue Dibney, and I think Roger Stern wrote them really well. The general problem was the Silver Age quality of the book. Ray Palmer was too dull, and his supporting cast were not very interesting. I'm sure that's why they kept bringing in guest stars like the Hawks and Ralph and Sue in the JLI. You know, Damien, thank you for reminding me about issue number five with Elongated Band. I remember that issue. I covered it for a podcast, oh gosh, a million years ago. I rather enjoyed that issue. I completely forgot. So yeah, so that's a, that's one in the win column for Power of the Atom. The owner from Jason R. Lady, author of the young adult humorous fantasy adventure novels, Monster Problems and Super Problems. Jason writes, great to hear the appreciation for skeets and an echo of my own bafflement that Booster's little robot pal wasn't brought over to the JLI. At least we got an explanation during the Jurgens run, even if it was unsatisfying. It's especially odd, since uh, later in the JLI, another sassy robot will be associated with the League, specifically Elrond. You make a good point. All right, now moving on to your comments about the Jerry Conway interview we did. Heard from Chuck Coletta from the Bowling Green State University Pop Culture Conference. Chuck writes, I must admit I never gave the Justice League Detroit a chance back in the 80s. I had only started reading comics and collecting comics at the time, and JLA was one of my first titles. Then, seemingly all of a sudden, the big guns are gone, and replaced by new characters that didn't interest me. Even then, I thought it was an experiment doomed to fail. I've always wondered what was the inspiration for such a drastic change of direction. Thanks to Shag, now I finally have some insight. I'm glad several of the characters have been reinvigorated for TV. Yeah, Chuck, I'm thrilled to see so many of the Just League Detroit characters uh, on TV. And, uh, and hearing, hearing from Jerry was just amazing. Wasn't he great? Oh my gosh. Then we're here from Matt Sorois. Matt writes, I still remember the day my Uncle Frank gave me a copy of Justice League of America Annual Number 2. I was in awe. A new Justice League. A new team of heroes to protect the world. And here I am right at the start. This is going to be my generation's JLA. I was absolutely convinced I was holding the equivalent to Giant Size X-Men Number 1. Of course, things didn't quite turn out that way, but I followed the team through the end. And then Matt goes on to say, regardless, thank you for always giving this version of the League love and respect and this great interview. That copy of the Justice League Annual Number 2 is still in my collection and in a place of honor. It's one of my comfort reads. Aw, that's awesome, Matt. Now, you did throw me, Matt, for a second when you said your Uncle Frank, and I was a little concerned you might be related to Diablo Frank. Glad to hear that's not the case. Then Stan Brown wrote in, because we talked about uh, Vixen and her importance in the DC pantheon as far as being... uh, uh, such a prominent black female character. And Stan pointed out that Bumblebee from the mid-1970s Teen Titans was DC's first black superheroine. That's a good point, Stan. Uh, we didn't think about that. But looking back, if, if I could quantify this some, I think it's fair to say that Vixen was the first black superheroine who was at least planned to have her own ongoing series. I mean, it got canceled in the implosion. However, she was the first one that was going to have her own ongoing series. So I think that's fair to uh, specify. Then we hear from Josh Romano, who says, Great job with this episode. It has renewed my efforts to make custom superpowers figures of every pre-crisis JLI member. With the four new guys from Just League Detroit are the only ones missing now. Getting on it. 
awesome Josh. Can't wait to see him. Then we heard from Steve Gibbons, who wrote in to say, Justice League Detroit holds a special place in my heart. Like you, it was the league when I started collecting comics seriously in late 1984. While this league never quite worked, the characters always had a lot of potential. Over the decades, I've come to look at this era as a necessary transition the team needed in order to return to its former glory and prominence as the premier team of the DCU. Netministrator of the DC Multiverse blog wrote in uh, and says, Thoroughly enjoyed this interview. Loved hearing the -the behind-the-scenes tales of the Detroit era. And he says, so Vixen is more endearing than Power Girl? Definitely Vixen is a unique character, although it seems Power Girl's had more appearances. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I guess a, a good argument can be made either way, Net Administrator. Uh, you know, Vixen has made her way into animation and live action. In fact, she had her own animated series for a short run. Uh, now, Power Girl's had more comic runs, so I don't know. I don't know which one you really would qualify. Then Net Administrator went on to outline a whole bunch of questions for Jerry, which he also tweeted to him. And then Gus Casals chimed in again, this time in the Jerry Conway interview. says, great episode. Always a pleasure to hear from Jerry. One of my takeaways from this is the importance of differentiating learnt history or experience from lived history or experience. In the actual interview, I got it from Jerry's mea culpa regarding vibe and Hispanic culture. And believe me, being of Hispanic origin myself, vibe specifically at the beginning was cringeworthy. In my life, it's about Just League Detroit having left comics before this and coming back way after. I only heard trash talk about the comic and assumed it was so, without having read more than a handful of the Demonteus issues. Then I got the omnibus last year and found a complete completely different story. Yeah, sure there are some missteps, but it's mostly a good old-fashioned superhero romp with some very good intentions behind it. Takeaways for writers and readers alike, don't assume. Don't believe what the common knowledge tells you, do the work. Some great advice, Gus. Thank you so much. Chris Feinkin chimes in again, says, Great interview. I've gone on the record that JLA Annual Number 2 left me in tears, but I didn't really give up on the JLA despite nine-year-old me resenting the new guys. He goes on later to say, I do think Firehog would have helped spice up the team, both visually and in the powers department. And then finally he says, Of the Bronze Age creators, I would say that Jerry's probably got more breakout characters under his creator belt than just about anyone. You know, Chris, uh, definitely in the DC side, I would agree. Then Martin Gray chimes in and says, Thanks for this wonderful listen. What a great fella Jerry is. Smart and funny and generous. He says, I agree with Jerry. The original Mad comic was totally wonderful, with the likes of Gasoline Valley, Super Duper Man, and Mickey Roden. I bought the paperback reprints as a kid, and I'm excited to hear they're on Comixology. He says, I have not heard of Brian Clevenger, but if Jerry says he's the one to bring back Firestorm, bring it on DC. Thanks again for the outstanding episode. The amount of affection I have for this version of The League is ridiculous, and you made it come alive again. Oh, that's awesome, Martin. And by the way, regarding Brian Clevenger, oh my gosh, definitely check out as Atomic Robo. Uh, and regarding uh, Brian Clevenger and Firestorm, you can actually find an interview I did with uh, Brian Clevenger about Firestorm over on my old Firestorm fan blog. And he actually pitched a Firestorm series, and somewhere that pitch is out there online. I'm not sure if it's still available, but it's out there somewhere. So definitely worth checking out. Brian Clevenger is great. Heard from Captain Entropy again. He says, Thanks for the great interview. Shag and Jerry, I just wanted to add that I think Jerry's instincts regarding the tone of superhero comics in any medium are spot on. DC should make him chief creative consigliere or something. Just give him the power to course correct properties going off the rails. Not a bad idea, Captain Entropy. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald again. Liz writes in to say, Though as much as I like Vixen, and even if you count canceled comics Cavalcade in 1978 or her appearances in Action Comics, she's predated by both Nubia and Bumblebee. 
Uh, Liz, great points. Uh, Nubia was also another one we missed. But again, going back to what I said a little bit earlier, I, I think really the way to focus on this as far as Vixen uh, is she was intended to have her own ongoing series. And that would have made her the first female black uh, heroine to have that opportunity. Then Siskoid from our Canadian Embassy with, from the Fire and Water Podcast Network with shows like Zero Hour Strikes, Oh Hot More, Not Many More. He also says, Lizanne Oswald beat me to mentioning Nubia and Bumblebee, though only recently has either of their creds been raised. Vixen was the black DC heroine with the biggest Q rating for a long time. Yeah, that's fair. That's very fair, Siskoid. Over from Mike Dynas again says, This was a fantastic episode, Shag. Mr. Conway was a great interview, and you did a marvelous job talking to him about an interesting part of JLA history. Sadly, while I never followed Justice League Detroit when it came out, I'm more interested now to go back and read those old issues. I think the part that I enjoy the most was Jerry's overall approach to how he wrote comics in that he took the characters' problems seriously, but didn't take the stories too seriously. It made for fun comics. Then we're from Paul Hicks from the Australian Embassy in the Waiting for Doom podcast, DC, OCDM, much more. Paul writes in to say, good interview, though I can't believe you didn't ask him about Tremors. Oh my gosh, Paul. Of course you asked about Tremors. <laughs> Tim Price chimed in again to say, as for Vibe's portrayal, it was interesting that last year I read Black Lightning's original series and was reminded that he also put on the Street Jive Act for the sake of secret identity. But I think it worked better in Black Lightning's comics because there were thought balloons from Black Lightning that could remind the reader that it was just an act every issue. And he gradually stopped bothering with the act fairly soon, aside from calling the JLA a bunch of jive turkeys. Boston Moss wrote in to say, That was fun and insightful. While I was a fan of Just League Detroit, I completely understand why it struggled. It wasn't Jerry's writing by any stretch. So many people came to the JLA book looking for the JLA of old and the characters they remembered from before, and Just League Detroit wasn't what they were looking for. But I was a fan. I wish Aquaman had stayed. Jerry's portrayal of him in Just League Detroit was the most interesting take on the Sea King since his own series. Martian Manhunter hadn't been on Earth for years. While I knew who he was, the vast majority of his appearances predated my being a regular reader. So Jerry's version became the definitive version in my mind. While I appreciate his efforts with Vibe, the execution was a little clunky. Neither Vibe nor Steel deserve what came to them in the end of the Justice League Detroit run. I, I absolutely agree, Boston Moss. The, their, their endings both were uh, very sad and uh, doesn't feel like it was deserved. Then we heard from Nuno Duarte from our Portugal embassy who wrote in to say, memorable episode. Consistently interesting, exciting, and funny. Looking forward to the next 50. Oh, thanks, Nuno Duarte. Then uh, just name-checking a few people. We got some very nice comments from JT the Exterminator, Michael Kramer, Michael Atchison, Sean Ross, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Cheryl Martin, Homework the Podcast, Man of Kent, and Chris Lydon, who, by the way, I, I need to give Chris Lydon some props here. Uh, he is the master of animated GIFs in responses on Twitter. Uh, always cracked me up. So uh, well done, Chris. Just want to make sure you get that recognition. All right, folks, this is the part of the show where we thank everyone who shared the JLI podcast on their social media, meaning Facebook or Twitter. It's a long, long, long list of names, but that's okay. These folks showed their support and promoted the show. So to me, it's really important that we recognize these individuals. And folks, our community is growing. So this time we're covering shares and retweets from the last two episodes, and we're looking at over 100 names. So here is uh, our thanks to everyone who helped promoting the last episode. You could be on this list, by the way. All you got to do is share on Facebook or uh, retweet on Twitter. So our thanks go to Jerry Conway. Oh, thanks, Jerry. Appreciate that. Then Adam Ackerman, Al Girding, Professor Alan Middleton in the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Andre TFG, Baby Skeletor, Bat at Chaparak, Between the Pages Blog, Billy from the Bat Pod, Billy Delicious, Brother I at Cyber Jaeger, Canadian Geek, Changing Shades, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Clinton Robison and his accounts for Coffee and Comics, Days of High Adventure Podcast, and Fan Film Fridays Podcast. 
Collected Edition, Dave Steele, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, DC in the 80s, Deadite's Secret Twilight Society, Diablo Frank and his Rolled Spine Podcast account, Doug Zoesha, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Swartz-Levine, Dr. Pop Culture Bowling Green State University, Ed Moore, Frederico Hernandez, Green Lantern HG, Gus Casals, Homework the Podcast, I'm Arnie at BProdM, Into the Weird, Jake Muir, Jake Poyer, Jeffrey Brown, Joseph Badafuco, Joshua Ox1, Justin Steiner, Kichi Baker, Kevin A. McLaren, Con L, Liz Ann Oswald, Luke Dobb, Man of Kent, Mark Lax, Mariano Chalakian, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matt Anderson, Matt Ev, Max Romero and his It's Plastic Man account, Maz Inger, 1978, Michael Edwards, Michael Kramer, Michael Thomas, Michael Wagner, Michelle Fife and his Copra Press Club, Mick Jameson, Mike at McGee Gorgo, Mike Dynas, Mikey Alexander, Pablo Lamoth, Paul Kean, Podcast Episodio Piloto, Pragmatic Gollum, Prairie Justice, a Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast, <laughs> Rad Adventures, Randy S0725, RIP Phoenix Jones, Rob Kelly and his accounts, Super Friends for All Mankind, Superman Movie Minute, Treasury Comics, Mountain Comics, Digest Cast, and the Aquaman Shrine, Roger Preeb, Ryan Daly, Scott X, Sean Ross from the Marvel Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, Siskoid, Sloan Rush, Steve Givens, Stephen Commander, Superman Radio Revisited podcast, Symbol Pending, The Maniac Pixie Weirdo podcast, The Voice of Paul, Tim Price and his Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, Trent Lewis, Ultron is My Elvis, Warlock Thanos podcast, Hold Truthy, Willie Yarbrough, and Zeb Oswald. Oof, oh my gosh, I'm out of breath, folks. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of this show, and the community of JLI fans we're building together is absolutely fantastic. Now, if I've forgotten anyone, I am terribly sorry. It is probably the fault of Keechee Baker, Trent Lewis, or Diablo Frank. Actually, let's face it, it's probably Key's fault. Let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode if I missed you. Now, please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. You can hit us up on the website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments there in the show post. That is where most of the activity is taking place. Over on Facebook, you can find us as the JLI Podcast or Just League International Bahaha Podcast. On Twitter, it's JLI Podcast. And the email is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Keechi Baker, Trent Lewis, Diallo Frank, and Jerry Conway for appearing on the recent episodes of the show. And thanks to you listeners for such an amazing collection of feedback, folks. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Carlin and Stella together in the same embassy. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spy, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not. 
Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their back roll year one work, Brian Q. Miller on his back roll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the back roll spoiled the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. There's something like 115,000 English language podcasts in the world, and no doubt hundreds of them are aimed at the comic book genre. There are sci-fi comic podcasts. Horror comic podcasts. War comic podcasts! But do you know what we need? Two guys crazy enough to combine those fields and make a podcast of their very own? Yes. It's the answer to a question no one asked, so that's why we are answering it. Such a gaping hole in the podcast landscape must be filled post-haste. Did you really just use the word post-haste? The Weird Warriors podcast covers the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll also check out other horror and war comics published by DC, Marvel, Charlton, and any other targets that may present themselves to us. I have the war books, and he has the horror books. So if you're ready to take a nice, relaxing look at the hell of war in comic book form from the age of the caveman to the distant future, then report for duty by subscribing to the Weird Warrior Podcast, brought to you by the Brothers Flea, wherever fine podcasting provisions are issued. Vampires! Aliens! Dinosaurs! Alien dinosaurs! There's something for everyone. General Sherman said war is hell, but do you know what else is? weird for our purposes yes so tune in to the weird warrior podcast today do it that's an order yes sir don't call me sir i work for a living but we're not getting paid for this Damn. well i'm max and i'm rich and we're going to be bringing you the weird warriors podcast where we will promise to make war no more Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear the JLI Teleporter has brought together my friends, Carlin and Stella. Wonderful. First, Carlin, my thanks to you for appearing on the show. Why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs? You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at NerdLunch, and if you'd like to hear any of the back episode, back catalog of episodes of the Nerd Lunch podcast, you can get to them by going to nerdlunch.net. And if you want to email me, you can do that through that site as well. And how many years of back podcast do they have the opportunity to listen to? Oh, there's like eight and a half or so. God. Only three of them are good. Oh my gosh, that's not true at all. I the, the amount of output you guys did was astonishing and always fun. And you had that rotating fourth chair. Just, it's a, it's a great show to listen to. And the guys are still going with After Lunch, so that's fantastic. Yeah, some of them are still still going without me probably better for the better <laughs> <Without me. laughs> 
Well, Carlin, thank you again for being here. I really appreciate it. You know, we see each other pretty frequently for gaming, or at least through Zoom nowadays, but it was really special to have you on the show finally. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on the show. Now, Stella, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you diving in, becoming a Justice League International, like the world's biggest cheerleader for the book. I think that's exciting. I know I heard you're going to launch your own show about it now. Uh, Why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on their interwebs besides your new Justice League podcast? That'd be interesting. We could make t-shirts, Team Shag or Team Stella, which one would be preferred. (laughs) You're all about breaking people apart, aren't you? You're the worst. Well, I like to see how far someone rates in someone else's esteem. So, and what better way than t-shirts? Yes. No, thank you for having me on. Thanks for constantly pressuring me to be on. And then I did. And I did my homework and and uh, this book may have found a fan. Guess we'll see as I continue on. But I have liked what I've read so far. So my own personal podcast that I have been cultivating for 11 years now is called Backroll the Oracle, Barbara Gordon podcast. And I break it up into two segments somewhere to shag, but I did, I did it first. And... <laughs> Uh, yeah, the first half is the vintage, which now in the vintage, I'm in 2002. I started way back when in the 60s. And then the current half is, well, right now, back, Barbara doesn't have her own book. So I've been looking at Batman and Nightwing when she appears and also Joker for whatever reason. And you can find that at the batmanuniverse.net. And then I also do a podcast with uh, Shagalicious calls him my podcast husband. Pretty much. Which, yeah. <laughs> Tom Panarese on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, and that's called Reading with Tom and Stella. And I have, or sorry, re- re- whoa, Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which I've tried to get the name switched because I feel like I deserve to be first, but he refuses. And this <laughs> is basically a glorified book club. We alternate, and so I will choose a book and I'll lead a discussion, and we both read the book, of course. And the question at the end is, is whether or not it's required reading. So we have done plays, Graphic novels, novels, things that are really important, like we did Night by Eli Bissell. And I just led The Curious Incident of The Dog in the Nine Time by Mark Haddon. And we often tackle social justice issues by reading March, something like that. So uh, I would recommend giving it a listen. And there's really no continuity with that. So you can just pop on after you've read something and then pop off. And yeah, you can find me on the YouTube with my Backroll the Oracle, I actually put an uncut video on the YouTube and then edit the audio for later on. So you can always see hijinks if they ensue or me <laughs> messing up. And then on Twitter, you can find me at Backroll the Oracle. So I think that's it. I'm getting better. I'm usually really terrible about promoting myself. So I think I'm getting better each time somebody asks me to do that. Well, let's face it, though. Backroll the Oracle peaked with our Hawk and Dove coverage me? of uh, Velvet Tire. Of golly, yeah. I, I'm hoping. I'm I'm trying to search for another another storyline to get you on. But yeah, I feel bad that you've basically, and we've talked about this before. But basically, I, I call you on to review these really random stories. I mean, you were on for Firestorm, which totally made sense, and John Ostrander was writing at the time, so that was great. But yeah, we did hi- hi- Hijack Files. Was it called that? Hacker Files. <laughs> Yeah, I look like the go-to guy for Hacker Files. Thank you so much. Hacker Files. 
yeah, Hawk and Dove, uh-huh. Lobo. I don't know if we did Lobo, but we did some Underworld Unleashed. Underworld yeah. Unleashed. Yes, um, we did I, another disaster film. I am always happy to come back on your show, yeah, though. So it's been and, a pleasure. Yeah, and I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. I can't wait till conventions get started up again because we're definitely going to go to convention together again and have a blast. Yeah, and, uh, it's I'll just the token female again. Exactly. That's why we keep you around. That and you're mm-hmm. so short, we use you to balance our drinks. Yes. But anyway, thank you so much, Stella. I really appreciate you being here. Now, that, folks, that is going to do it. Now, come back next episode when we cover Justice League America, number 39, and Justice League Europe, number 15. We'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Carlin. And I'm Stella. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something something of of it? Two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You're going to have to wait and find out next episode. That means he doesn't know. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, I'm Shag. And, and I'm, I'm Car- Stella. Wait, what? I was going to do, the, I was gonna do, do the, that. I was going to do the Carlin part just to okay, give the gap. So, so you did not prepare me for that. <laughs> other than the part that I just told you I was going to do it. No, but anyway, you did not I say totally you were did. Do that. I totally did. I didn't say I was going to do a funny no, voice. Why does he but have a high pitched voice? He's like a um, castrato. He does I, not sound like that. You don't know. You don't know Carlin. That's true. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Carlin. And I'm Stella. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? I do. I do want to make something of it. Just say it. (laughs) Want to make something of it? Oh, my God. (laughs) 